just as Douglas had been discussing this very issue of a visit to Attica with the governor. After summing up the observer's various arguments for the importance of the governor's presence at the prison, Douglas had then expressed his own opinion that he did not think this was a good idea. Douglas knew that there had been some talk, confidentially, back on Friday night, that the governor might go to Attica on Saturday, but he had been dissuaded then and must be again. Trusting his advisor, Rockefeller had spent the rest of the phone call with Douglas, discussing how to word an official statement explaining his decision not to visit, and not to grant amnesty either. It was just as Douglas signed off with the governor that the call came in from the four observers. Knowing their options were running out, the observers once again began pressuring Oswald to let them back in the yard. At 2.45 p.m. Sunday, Eve, Kunstler, Kenyatta, Ortiz, Paris, Soto, Florence, Wicker, and Jones made their way to A-Gate. With them came two newsmen, Rudy Garcia of the New York Daily News and Dick Edwards of Jones's Amsterdam News, as well as their camera crews. A harried Oswald met them there and, after 15 minutes, finally agreed to let them enter the yard. First, however, they were each handed waivers they had to sign to the effect that neither they nor their heirs and estate could hold the state of New York liable for any and all physical injuries or damages to me personally which may result from my voluntary participation in these negotiations. Suddenly, I was scared to death. Arthur Eve later remembered. I saw what the state was willing to do. Sacrifice me, a state legislator. At 3.45 p.m., the locks on the gate to A-Tunnel and No Man's Land finally disengaged, and the group met up with Richard Clark. They could feel the animosity thick in the air. Jabbar Kenyatta opened nervously with a hurried explanation that the observers had not known anything about the statement that Commissioner Oswald sent in earlier that day. Nothing at all, Wicker chimed in. Without even looking at the men, Richard Clark said in a tight voice, Some of the brothers would love to kill you guys. But once the observers arrived at the negotiating table, it seemed to them that the masses awaiting their arrival were not all that hostile. In fact, they seemed grateful just to be hearing news from the outside. Clark opened the proceedings by stating that the observers had assured him that they had not been behind the Oswald document. He read the statement aloud to his fellow prisoners and asked if these men would agree to Oswald's most recent terms of surrender. Hell no, they roared back at him from the muddy yard. The crowd's real interest now was in the reporters who had arrived. These men were here not only to capture what the men in the yard felt needed saying, but also to interview the hostages so that the public could see they were alive and well and, therefore, that state officials needed to keep the talks going. Prisoner Richard Clark joined reporter Rudy Garcia, as well as Tom Wicker, as they went from hostage to hostage. The first officer Wicker approached, Captain Frank Pappy Wald, minced no words as he looked into the camera. We've had nothing but fine treatment. This is both medically, food, and we're living as good as the rest of the people in the yard, if not a little better at times. When he was asked if he wanted to say anything to Governor Rockefeller, he did. Passionately, in fact. He pleaded with the governor to do anything you can to try to save lives.
then hostage Frank Strollo, whose brother Tony Strollo was among the armed state troopers surrounding the prison, chimed in. We all have been treated 100%, been fed well, gave us blankets, slept on mattresses while they slept on the ground. Medication was given to us when they didn't get any. Strollo went on. He, the governor, should give them complete amnesty. That's one thing we've got to have, complete amnesty. We talked it over, the 38 of us, we all agree. We'd give them complete amnesty. That's what we want Rockefeller to give them. Sergeant Edward Cunningham, a CO who had a reputation of being particularly hard on prisoners, almost yanked the microphone from Wicker's hand to express his agreement on this point and to remind anyone listening of the stakes in this standoff. The governor must give them clemency. He must give them clemency from criminal prosecution. I mean, this is cut and dry. That is all there is to it. This is not a joke. This is not some kind of little tea party we have here. You have read in the paper all these years of the My Lai Massacre. That was only 170-odd men. We are going to end up with 1,500 men here if things don't go right, at least 1,500. Cunningham also said, I wish you would take any of the men that belong to us off the roof and any of the troopers out of here, because you get these shaky guys shooting off or getting up in a group or something, someone is going to get excited and we are all going to pay. The prisoners were heartened by Cunningham's candor and his willingness to stand up to his employers, particularly when reporters raised the issue of Rockefeller and amnesty. He stated emphatically, if he says no, I am dead. Champ was incredulous. And that is the toughest fucking sergeant on the job. He is the brute. Put more guys in keep lock than any 40 hacks around, and you hear what he say now? CO Mike Smith, the hostage who had read over the men's initial letter to Oswald asking for reforms back that July, was also unequivocal about the need for Rockefeller to make an appearance at Attica. He told the reporters that the governor should get his ass here now. And gesturing toward the prisoners in the yard, he stated firmly, We're not scared of any of you people. We know it's not you. It's the people outside. Casting his eyes upward, Smith went on, Anybody with a weapon, anybody with anything of a militant manner, leave. Just get them off the roof. Then the reporters turned to listen to a young white prisoner, Blaze Montgomery whose southern accent was as thick as wickers. Montgomery said solemnly, I want everyone to know we gun stick together. We gun get what we want, or we gun die together. While the interviews with hostages continued, so did the speeches up at the negotiating table. Kenyatta kept trying to take the microphone, but was forced time and again to hand it back to others, such as the still very upset and nervous assemblyman Arthur Eve, who spoke openly with the prisoners of his feeling that Oswald had betrayed the observers and that securing amnesty was still important to them all. William Kunstler suddenly found himself the center of attention when Herb Blyden asked him pointedly if there were indeed foreign countries that would take in rebel Attica inmates who wanted to leave. Kunstler was ready for this question per his earlier call to the Black Panther Party. Yes, he said. There are four third world and African countries that were in fact prepared to provide asylum for everyone who wants to leave this country from this prison. This was, of course, an exaggeration. 
No country was ready simply to whisk prisoners away from D-Yard, but Kunstler was desperately trying to impress upon the men that the world was watching their struggle and that they were not alone. As important, Kunstler wanted the men in the yard to know that he had in fact worked hard on their behalf and, personally, was on their side. To drive that point home, he closed with a flourish, telling the crowd that Bobby Seal wanted them to know that in every city with a black, Chicano, Puerto Rican poor community, the people were watching Attica prison. The gringos talk about remember the Alamo. Remember Attica. The longer Kunstler spoke, the warier some of the other less radical observers grew. First Eve's re-emphasis on amnesty, then Kunstler's talk of foreign political asylum might have bolstered these men's reputations with the prisoners, but these observers worried that such talk could also be dangerous in that it might raise false hopes. On the other hand, it was clear that the men very much appreciated Kunstler's words. Hardly shy to express the opinion that fellow observers such as Kunstler might be going too far, reporter Tom Wicker this time did not think that either Eves or Kunstler's speeches had given the prisoners any cause to believe that if they just hang on a bit longer, they were going to get amnesty and go home free. With little more left to discuss, at six o'clock Sunday night, the observers made their way back to the administration building. This time, the goodbyes seemed foreboding and final. No one was certain how this crisis would end, but all suspected that it wouldn't go smoothly. As the observers took their final walk across the now fetid, rutted, and filthy D-yard, the prisoners expressed a deep gratitude for what the observers had tried to do for them. Big Black Smith, who had spent the preceding four days in a state of steely and wary alert, felt an unexpected and powerful surge of warmth toward the team he was escorting out of the yard. He reached out to Tom Wicker and gripped his hand tightly. Feeling overwhelmed, Wicker managed, Good luck. Good luck, brother. Since he was the one to have just interviewed the hostages, Wicker felt that it was his duty to go out into Attica's parking lot to update the anxious crowd about their relatives and townspeople. His reception there immediately confirmed his worry that Big Blacksmith and the other men in D-Yard would need all the luck they could get. As Wicker climbed on top of a car so that he could be seen by the crowd, a cold drizzle was again falling. Trying to read the ever-dampening notebook in his hand, he began to summarize his interviews. All the hostages, he said, requested strongly that as much consideration as possible be given to granting full amnesty to the prisoners. He added that they had all requested strongly that Governor Rockefeller come here physically, and finally, that they urged the prison authorities here at Attica and Commissioner Oswald not to allow any troops to make a show of force on the roof or anywhere inside. He was clear that everyone, the observers, the hostages, and the prisoners, now feared a massacre should the governor not step in. His audience erupted. What about my son? Stephen Smith, hostage Mike Smith's father, yelled up at Wicker with tears on his face and rain soaking his body. We have to go in and bring those people out, he continued in anguish. Wet nursing those convicts won't do it. Galvanized by Smith's impassioned outburst, other townspeople surged toward Wicker, hurling epithets 
and demanding that the state step in. I'd like to show them a little brutality, screamed one woman. Another cried out, those troopers should have gone in there for them. Hostage Frank Strollo's brother Tony, one of the hundreds of state troopers standing by and also listening to Wicker, couldn't have agreed more. He was certain that this observer was spinning tales about what the hostages really thought, and he was more eager than ever to end this riot once and for all by going in. Others, like hostage John Stockholm's wife Mary, were more scared than angry once they heard Wicker speak. They were alarmed by Wicker's dire message about possible bloodshed should someone not step in. Until that point, Mary Stockholm remembered, I had believed this would end peacefully. As the crowd grew mob-like and the noise became deafening, Mary fainted. Wicker looked out at the desperation and chaos, feeling more disheartened and helpless than he could ever remember. Wicker returned to the administration building, where he and the other observers debriefed Oswald about their most recent visit to D-Yard. It soon became clear that Oswald had no remaining faith that he could still make a difference in how this standoff ended. They even played Oswald a taped message from Richard X. Clark, which made clear the prisoner's view that anything that results will be the result of the commissioner moving, not us. Oswald just stared at the wall for a moment, then got up, told the observers that no one would be going back into D-Yard, and on his way out said forlornly, I've given everything. From there, the commissioner went back to his office. At 7.20 p.m., he instructed that the phone in the steward's room be cut off immediately. He worried that some of the observers had somehow been sending code messages that the rebels would pick up on their transistor radios. It was only a matter of time, Oswald knew, before his superiors were going to order this prison protest ended once and for all. 18. Deciding Disaster By Sunday night, the fourth day of the Attica Uprising, Troopers filled the swath of lawn between the prison's gate and the administration building, as well as the asphalt that ringed the prison walls. There were so many men that it was hard for them to move without running into one another. And they were fed up. As one trooper later bluntly explained, everyone was getting frustrated by the length of time it was taking to resolve the riot. We just wanted to get it over with and get on with our lives. Technical Sergeant F.D. Smith a state trooper who'd been filming the goings-on in D-Yard from the catwalks since the afternoon of the first day of the uprising, felt that an attitude of disgust was apparent among troopers and guards on Sunday the 12th. A number of our people were heard to be wishing for something to happen, even if it's the wrong thing. The COs felt the same way. They had come from counties near and far to retake the prison, and they were tired of the waiting. It was obvious to anyone who was at Attica that members of law enforcement were so riled up that it would be difficult, if not impossible, for them to do their job dispassionately should they be sent in to retake the prison. Yet, by deciding that negotiations were now over, Oswald ensured that these were exactly the men who would be sent in to end the rebellion. As if feeling that he needed to make it clear that this was out of his hands, and that the governor himself had, in fact, made the decision to stop all discussions with the prisoners, 
Oswald began distributing copies of the statement that Rockefeller had drafted earlier in the day with Douglas. From the beginning of the tragic situation involving riots and hostages at the Attica Correctional Facility, which imperils the lives of many persons, including 38 innocent citizens and dedicated law enforcement officers, I have been in constant direct contact with Correction Commissioner Russell Oswald and my representatives on the scene. Every effort has been made by the state to resolve the situation and to establish order, hopefully by peaceable means. I have carefully considered the request conveyed to me by the Committee of Citizen Observers for my physical presence at Attica, as well as the demands of the inmates that I meet with them in the prison yard. I am deeply grateful to members of the Committee for the long and courageous efforts to achieve a peaceful settlement. The key issue at stake, however, is still the demand for total amnesty for any criminal acts which may have occurred. I do not have the constitutional authority because to do so would undermine the very essence of our free society, the fair and impartial application of the law. In view of the fact that the key issue is total amnesty, in spite of the best efforts of the committee and in spite of Commissioner Oswald's major commitments to the inmates, I do not feel that my physical presence can contribute to a peaceful settlement. Commissioner Oswald has offered 28 major proposals recommended by the inmates and the Committee of Citizen Observers. I fully support the Commissioner's proposals and concur with the considered opinion of the Commissioner that the inmates must now be offered a direct opportunity to respond to his offers. I join personally with the Commissioner in an urgent appeal to the inmates that they now 1. Release the hostages without harm. 2. Cooperate in the peaceful restoration of order. 3. Accept the Commissioner's good-faith commitment to the 28 major proposals offered to the inmates. Rockefeller's statement only reiterated what Oswald had been saying to the observers all along. Many of these men had hoped that Rockefeller's mind would be changed by the newsmen's interviews with the hostages since they had talked about how important it was for the governor to come. The prisoners had also placed great faith in these interviews. Everyone could now see for themselves that the hostages were safe. They, too, had hoped desperately that the governor would appear, since, as one of them explained, such a visit would have given the men a way for us to get out with some dignity and real assurance with muscle behind it that we'd not be physically hurt. In lieu of amnesty, said another, the governor's visit could have ensured that only the individuals responsible with a particular act, you know, would be prosecuted. But State Senator Dunn had been right when he predicted that Rockefeller would decide it was too politically costly to make the trip to Attica. Several observers, including Dunn, suspected that the governor had been persuaded by Robert Douglas not to come, and that Douglas was really the one who was deciding that the Attica rebellion must be ended. One thing was certain. By refusing to visit the prison, the governor had pleased the men whose approval he most wanted, the leaders of his own political party. After issuing the statement, said a confidential report written by the governor's closest aides, Rockefeller spoke with the president, Nixon, who expressed strong support for the governor's position. Some of the observers clearly hadn't given up hope 
that Oswald might be able at least to sway the governor on the amnesty issue. For quite some time Sunday evening, back in the steward's room, a number of them had made extremely emotional pleas to the commissioner to do something, anything, to forestall an assuredly disastrous attack. And, unbeknownst to the observers, Oswald did communicate these pleas to Governor Rockefeller later that night. As he explained it to the governor, Kunstler argued vigorously for amnesty, drawing on the British response to the seizure of hostages by Arab guerrillas. Kunstler also suggested that one hostage could be released every week, and talks extended over a longer period. Wicker made an impassioned plea quoting from the Bible. But no amount of begging or cajoling or reasoning on the part of the observers or the commissioner could budge the governor. And so the final decision to end the negotiations at Attica was indeed the governor's. By 10.35 p.m., the exhausted, bitter, and deeply discouraged men on the observers' committee had heard nothing new from Oswald. They knew they had done everything they could to change the governor's mind, and now had only to decide whether to leave or stay in the prison once an assault began. Most chose to leave, but nine decided to stay all night in case something more positive developed, or, as they believed more likely, to be witnesses to the attack. An assault was more imminent than even they understood. At 11 o'clock p.m., General Buzz O'Hara called Rockefeller and asked his permission to coordinate with others for an assault on the prison the next morning. You have it, replied Rockefeller. With the governor's go-ahead, Buzz O'Hara sat down with Oswald, Douglas, Rockefeller lawyer Howard Shapiro, Norman Hurd, State Senator John Dunn, and State Assemblyman Clark Wemple and James Emery to inform them of what would now happen. For all of the flack that Kunstler took for being brought in as an impartial observer, but then agreeing to represent the prisoners in D-Yard, this meeting made clear that at least three other observers were also representing an interest, in their case, that of the state. The actual dirty work of the retaking would fall to the two local representatives of police and correction at that meeting, Major John Monahan and Superintendent Mancusi. That in itself was odd. Both of these men had far less expertise than many others in both the Department of Correctional Services and the New York State Police, even others in this very meeting. And, notably, Another more obvious person to be in charge, the head of the NYSP, William Kerwan, was conspicuously absent, not only from this meeting, but from Attica itself. Superintendent Kerwan had been on vacation when Attica exploded, but for reasons unclear, he had been allowed to continue to enjoy Lake George as one of his state's biggest crises unfolded. That such a potentially disastrous assault on Attica would be overseen by Mancusi, and undertaken by Major Monaghan, one of his lowest-ranking officers in the NYSP, strongly implied that Rockefeller had his own reservations about how this retaking might unfold. Distancing his top-ranked NYSP and DOCS officials from the actual assault also meant being able to distance the governor's office from anything that might go wrong. At least one of the men at this strategy meeting late Sunday night felt deeply uncomfortable at the way the plans to retake the prison were shaping up. John Dunn was well aware that the prisoners were counting on him, and yet, now, 
He was sitting there again discussing how their rebellion would be ended with force. Thanks in no small part to Dunn's influence, every previous plan to storm the prison had been stalled, including the most recent one that morning. But it was now a certainty that a forcible retaking of the prison would commence the very next morning. In short, Rockefeller was done. In his opinion, Attica-like rebellions would likely become epidemic in prisons throughout the state and the nation in the future, and he wanted his retaking of Attica to send a strong message of deterrence. As an investigative body later put it, the decision to retake the prison was a decisive reassertion of the state of its sovereignty and power. And, notwithstanding what many would later claim, it was crystal clear to all at this late-night meeting. Done, as well as those charged with carrying out the retaking, that this assault would come at a staggeringly high price. Not only would there likely be many prisoner fatalities, but, as Assemblyman Clark Wemple put it, there was absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind that if we went in there, the guards would be killed. General O'Hara concurred. It was the general consensus of opinion by all the officials present that, if the prison was retaken by force, the hostages would be killed. A bloody outcome was virtually guaranteed by the NYSP's choice of weaponry. Two six-man teams of troopers would position themselves on the rooftops of A and C blocks with rifles at the ready to provide cover for the men launching the assault below. The men leading the assault on D yard would themselves be armed with pistols and shotguns, which utilized unjacketed bullets, a kind of ammunition that causes such enormous damage to human flesh that it was banned by the Geneva Conventions. Many of the other troopers and COs preparing to go in were also carrying other weapons that would have a particularly brutal effect, such as shotguns filled with deadly buckshot pellets that sprayed out in a wide arc. As all state officials knew, Although there were some gas guns in the yard that could fire tear gas, no prisoner in the yard was carrying a firearm. Although the men in D-yard preparing for bed late Sunday night had no idea that the NYSP had been given the green light to storm the prison the next morning, they were by no means optimistic that a peaceful end to this standoff was imminent. It was clear to them that Oswald had no intention of removing Vincent Mancusi from his position at Attica nor was Rockefeller budging on offering full amnesty in exchange for their surrender. And yet, it still wasn't easy to imagine surrendering. Earlier that day, Herb Blyden had gotten up before the men in D-Yard and had made the implications of this crystal clear. Even after being transferred to Attica, he reminded everyone, he still faced 77 counts for having rebelled at the tombs the year before. All of this came about, he made clear, after the mayor and the staff promised us, promised us no reprisals on the TV screen. Before he sat down, Blyden said sadly to those looking up at him, Man, I am not trying to scare you, but no matter what they say and promise here at Attica, you're gonna still die. Roger Champin felt ill as Blyden's words rang in his ears. Then. Later on that night, when a prison chaplain suddenly showed up and asked that he be allowed to give the men huddled over in the hostage circle last rites, Champ thought he was going to be sick. I was afraid, he said. 
I didn't want to die, and I didn't feel it would serve a purpose to die for what was going on. Nothing concrete has happened then in terms of seeing some changes. As he tried to bed down that night, Champ hoped against hope that Blyden was wrong about what would happen. Champ felt some peace, though, knowing that if there are any lives lost in here, and if a massacre takes place, in the final analysis, the world will know that the animals were not in here, but outside running the system and the government. Part 4 Retribution and Reprisals Unimagined Tony Strollo Tony Strollo considered himself a staunch patriot, as well as a devout Catholic who attended Mass every Sunday, avoided meat on Fridays, and made the sign of the cross whenever he drove past a church. Tony's father had labored day in and day out at a Chevy plant in Buffalo, and he, like so many other auto workers of his generation, felt pretty certain that America's working stiffs could only trust the party of FDR. But Tony distrusted liberals, and while many kids of the 1960s found themselves leaning to the political left of their parents, Tony spent that decade growing considerably more conservative than his. When Tony graduated from high school in 1962, he was eager to enlist in the Army. By 1966, Tony was married and had started a family. To support his kids, he decided to try his hand at being a prison guard one of the few jobs available to young men seeking work in the rural areas of the state. Tony worked for a while at Sing Sing Correctional Facility and eventually landed a transfer to Attica, which allowed him to work closer to home as well as to be in the same prison where his brother Frank worked. Tony, though, did not want to collect his paycheck from a penal institution forever. His dream had always been to become a police officer, and after a few short months, Tony got a call from the New York State Police. In 1971, Tony was loving every minute of his job as a state trooper. Assigned to the Genesco Barracks in Livingston County, about 25 miles from home, he patrolled the rural areas of the county, driving the highways and byways of upstate New York, looking for speeders and drunk drivers. At night, he attended classes at Erie County Community College in Williamsville. On September 9, 1971, Tony's brother Frank had been on duty at Attica when it exploded in rebellion. Now, Frank sat in the hostage circle, and Tony paced outside the prison's walls feeling utterly helpless. He was a member of law enforcement, yet he could do nothing to rescue his brother. So he, along with hundreds of other state troopers, did the only thing they could do keep pressuring their superiors to be allowed to retake the facility from the rioters. After five days of waiting, and as Tony and the rest of his troops shivered outside Attica in the cold, drizzly dawn, sleep-deprived and on edge, they finally got some good news. They were going in. Tony was secretly troubled, though. He knew that troopers had a lot more experience stopping speeders than storming a prison. Tony had been assigned his own 38 sidearm, and about three times a year, he and his fellow stateys would go to the shooting range to practice just in case they ever needed to use their weapons with an unruly citizen. But they were also being handed 270 rifles. Tony had absolutely no training in the use of this weapon, 
and he knew that was true of most of the other officers. In Tony's opinion, it was strange that the New York State Police even had such weapons. They had ordered about 100 of them a decade ago when it was time to update the arsenal. Most officers, however, were uncomfortable using a 270. Each gun had a scope on it, and the slightest jostling could throw it off kilter. What's more, the ammunition that came with these Model 70 Winchester bolt-action rifles consisted of silver-tipped bullets, which were, according to another trooper, particularly explosive and capable of terrible damage to human tissue. But Tony just tried to shake off his misgivings. After all, the prisoners had started this. Their possible injury was certainly nothing to lose sleep over. Still, he was finding it hard to get the words of one of his commanding officers out of his head. He had said to Tony gravely, There is no chance that we can get to your brother in time. Tony prayed he was wrong. 19. Chomping at the Bit At 6.30 a.m. on Monday, the 13th of September, the fifth and what would be the final day of the Attica Uprising, Commissioner Russell Oswald was locked away with Rockefeller attorney Howard Shapiro and Gerald Houlihan, the public relations director for the Department of Corrections, busily crafting the final statement they shortly would give to the prisoners. Oswald was feeling raw and ragged, having just returned to the prison after less than two hours of rest the night before. He was dreading the task of presenting this particular message to the men in the yard. It seemed paradoxical to Oswald that he had spent a lifetime in furthering, meeting the needs, human rights concerns, of disadvantaged people, and now had to face up to this kind of decision against people I was trying to help. He made peace with this by concluding that he couldn't have done any more than he already had. The real problem, he had decided, was the some 3,000 people from the New York City system who had been transferred to upstate prisons like Attica in the wake of the previous summer's jail rebellions. The hardcore group, led in large part by Maoists, that had sparked these riots, he reasoned, had been constantly trying to radicalize prisoners in the rest of the state, and now here he was. Maybe there was no way he could have ended the standoff at Attica peacefully. And anyway, the governor had indicated that his decision was firm. Oswald decided he now had no choice but to follow orders. So now there he sat, hunched over a typewriter next to Shapiro and Houlihan, getting the wording of the statement he would take to the prisoners at the A-gate just right. That there would even be a final communique to men in D-yard was in no small part thanks, again, to John Dunn. As his fellow observer Tom Wicker remembered gratefully, once Dunn learned on Sunday night that the troopers were going in the next morning, he argued for and obtained a pledge that at 7 a.m., before the resort to violence, one last appeal would be made to the inmates for a settlement. But the final missive that Oswald was drafting would not at all convey what Dunn had hoped it would, what the true cost of not surrendering immediately now would be. According to documents internal to the Rockefeller administration, Oswald had been told to submit his final offer, not phrased as an ultimatum, to the inmates about 7 o'clock Monday morning, giving them one hour to respond. If the response was negative or if no answer was received within an hour, 
orders would be given to retake the facility. The crucial caveat here, of course, was that the final offer would not be phrased as an ultimatum. Rockefeller did not want to let the prisoners know that if they didn't comply, an assault would commence immediately. But the message was precisely that. As another internal memo makes clear, Deputy Superintendent Leon Vincent had already advised his correctional personnel via their supervisors at approximately 6 o'clock on Sunday, the night before the assault, that a move to regain control of the institution was going to take place during the morning hours of Monday, September 13, 1971. This was, of course, before any prisoners had been given any final opportunity to surrender. The New York State Police, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office, and Attica's correction officers and correction officials from as far away as the Great Meadow Correctional Facility in Comstock had also been informed Sunday night that the retaking would definitely happen Monday morning. As Oswald worked on the text of this appeal, Major John Monahan from Batavia Troop A of the New York State Police and Attica Superintendent Vincent Mancusi held a formal briefing in the Attica Head Clerk's Office to iron out the final details of a plan to commence at 9 o'clock a.m. Meanwhile, Captain Hank Williams, also of Batavia's Troop A, readied his troops. Lieutenant Colonel George Infanti of the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, BCI, waited in the wings to make sure the assault went as planned, and Governor Rockefeller's right-hand man, Robert Douglas, reviewed the surrender message that was to be read to prisoners once the assault began. Simultaneously, Major General John C. Baker, the chief of staff to Governor Rockefeller, began briefing the many National Guardsmen who had been summoned over the last few days to let them know that, contrary to standard protocol, Governor Rockefeller had decided that the New York State Police would be leading the assault, and the National Guard would only go into the prison later to administer any needed medical assistance. This break in protocol was both surprising and problematic. Whereas the National Guard had a clear plan already in place for bringing civil disturbances in confined areas under control, known as Operation Plan Skyhawk, the New York State Police had virtually no formal training for this sort of action. The hundreds of troopers gathered at Attica had never conducted any drills or mock assaults. They had no practice communicating with each other through gas masks, nor familiarity with handling the weapons. As one trooper by the name of Gerard Smith put it, troopers weren't trained for this and the position they got put into was a political football. That the Attica Rebellion was so fraught politically might well be why Rockefeller did not ask his National Guard to end it. A dark cloud still hovered over the Ohio National Guard after its men had shot more than 67 rounds of ammunition into an unarmed crowd of student protesters at Kent State University, killing four, little more than a year before, in May of 1970. Neither Rockefeller nor the higher-ups in the Nixon administration including John Mitchell, the Attorney General, wanted to give America's liberal and left elements any more reason to focus attention on Attica than they already had. To National Guardsman Dan Callahan, however, the governor's decision to let the police troopers retake the prison was just stupid. Before his unit was called to Attica, it had spent considerable time back at the armory discussing what weapons, if any, should be used in a retaking of this prison. Since there was no reason to believe the prisoners had firearms, 
Maybe no guns were needed. But if firearms would be used, Callahan felt strongly that these must be chosen with great care. No weapon loaded with buckshot should be used, for example, because its wide scatter would cause many casualties. Yet, as Callahan could now see, not only were the troopers about to enter Attica heavily armed with buckshot-loaded shotguns, but they clearly were also angry as well as haggard and exhausted. For the life of him, Callahan could not understand why the governor would send such an unwieldy and clearly disintegrating group into an operation as delicate as a hostage rescue. There was a way to do this, he later reflected, but unleashing hundreds of overwrought, fatigued, and excessively armed men was not it. How, exactly, the state police would retake Attica was formalized in a handwritten agreement signed by Major John Monahan and Attica Superintendent Vincent Mancusi in their early morning meeting. That plan was then conveyed both verbally and in writing to Deputy Superintendent Leon Vincent and Assistant Deputy Superintendent Carl File of Attica, as well as to Captain Henry Williams of the State Police. First, all electricity to the prison would be shut off. Then a helicopter, dubbed Jackpot 1 and provided by the National Guard, would fly over the prison yard to drop CS tear gas, temporarily disabling the rebel prisoners gathered outside in D-Yard. Another chopper carrying tear gas canisters would follow that one in case it should malfunction. Almost immediately thereafter, two six-man teams of troopers, who, armed with .270 rifles and tear gas projectiles, had taken positions on the rooftops of A and C blocks, would clear the catwalks of anyone in the way. Nearly 200 troopers armed with revolvers and shotguns simultaneously would enter A and C tunnels in small teams and converge on Times Square. Once those troopers made it to Times Square, they would fan out to secure B and D blocks, while a team of 25 men with guns and ladders would attempt to rescue the hostages in the circle. For reasons not made clear, the entire operation would also be filmed. Since the day the Attica Rebellion began, there had been several state troopers assigned to chronicle events at the prison. Those men would continue to operate both a television camera and a video recorder during the retaking. As many details as this plan had, there were many crucially important ones missing. Though troopers were to commence shooting at the gas drop, the mechanism by which they would be informed when to stop remained unclear. Indeed, the decision on whether or not to fire thus passed directly to the riflemen themselves, which left much of the assault's fate in individuals' hands. Since there was no clear way for an individual trooper to communicate with another, this lack of planning was potentially dangerous for all concerned. The troopers had not been equipped with radios, and specific troopers weren't charged with relaying commands from the higher-ups. Worse, each trooper sent into the prison was to wear a heavy gas mask, which, even with a plastic window, would be difficult to see out of through the powdery gas. The noise of shooting was likely to make it impossible to communicate. Hand signals could have been agreed upon to deal with the other communication barriers, but this wasn't done either. Perhaps most important, the plan had no provision for giving either a surrender message or post-assault instructions to the prisoners in English or Spanish, and no procedure was outlined for what to do with the prisoners 
once the state had regained control of the facility. Not only did the state's retaking plan leave a great deal to chance, but troopers later claimed to have heard instructions very different from those that their commanding officers had been charged with giving them. Trooper Gerard Smith later testified that his captain had told his team that firing was supposed to take place simultaneously when the helicopter came over to drop the gas, and that everybody on the top catwalk was supposed to be eliminated. Others later denied they had been given this charge. While various battalions of troopers were being briefed, Attica's deputy superintendent, Leon Vincent, explained the attack plan to approximately 312 correction officers just as eager as the NYSP troopers to enter the prison. Although Vincent later insisted that he had made it clear to them that only state troopers and no COs were to go in, there is no corroboration of this claim. To the contrary, according to later testimony by Superintendent Mancusi, Leon Vincent had actually issued an order that correctional officers could participate in the armed retaking. Even if Vincent had verbally banned these men from participating, they likely would not have been deterred. Some had traveled a great distance to lend their assistance. One CO's wife later described her husband as walking out the door like John Wayne, armed with the personal gun he kept under his bed as soon as he heard the news that the retaking was imminent. She desperately called out to him, don't do something you will regret, but he just kept on going. A crowd of sheriffs and sheriff's deputies from a total of eight New York counties had also converged on Attica, and, like the COs, they had spent the last four days pacing restlessly outside the prison, hoping to assist in the retaking. On the morning of the 13th, they had already donned gray coveralls and an assortment of helmets, riot batons, shotguns, and other weapons in anticipation of being able to enter the facility. Park police from Genesee and Schuyler counties were also there. As in the case of the COs, it is unclear whether they were told they could participate in the retaking or not. But to men of rank from numerous sheriff's offices, such as Sergeant Frank Hall from Monroe County, there seemed to be little question that they too would act. They were armed and ready. It was remarkable just how many weapons had been distributed to members of law enforcement trampling the grass around the prison. The way in which this process was conducted, particularly by the NYSP, was extraordinary as well. As early as the first day of the rebellion, 270 rifles were passed out to officers in every troop and, quite deliberately, it would later become clear, there was virtually no effort made by anyone to make a record by serial number or trooper of who received which rifles. Although four full days had passed, during which those in charge could have ensured that all protocols regarding the distribution of weapons were followed, none of the weapons now being readied for the retaking had been formally recorded. And thus, the men who were about to go into Attica were accountable to no one. 20. Standing Firm On the morning of Monday, September 13, Governor Nelson Rockefeller and many of his aides were in Manhattan, sitting down to scrambled eggs, bacon, toast, and coffee in his Fifth Avenue apartment, awaiting news of Attica's imminent retaking. The troopers outside Attica were busily loading rounds into their guns, 
and the prisoners in D-Yard were beginning to awaken in tents soaked from the previous night's cold rain. Although the men in the yard had no idea that they were about to be attacked, things for them were already very grim. They had been in the confines of D-Yard for five days now, and it had become a mudslick with neither a working sewage system nor a source of clean drinking water. The night before, prison officials had cut off their water supply. As desperate as conditions had become, however, the prisoners and hostages clung however irrationally to the hope that Tom Wicker's interviews with the hostages the previous evening would bolster productive negotiations that day. As one man explained, they still hoped that outside pressure would convince Rockefeller to show up and still really believed we could get amnesty. To find out exactly when the negotiations would resume, Richard Clark went straight to A-Gate when he awoke Monday morning. No one was there. Then, around 8 o'clock a.m., sentries from A-Tunnel advised Clark that Oswald had sent word that he wanted to talk with him. By 8.25, Oswald, Dunbar, and General O'Hara were standing across the gate from Clark, ready to deliver the final version of the statement they'd drafted. The commissioner told Clark that he needed to persuade the men in the yard to let the hostages go, and he instructed him to make sure that they all heard this new missive. As he handed the message over to Clark, Oswald said to him beseechingly, Mr. Clark, I earnestly implore you to give the contents of this memorandum your most careful consideration. I want to continue negotiations with you. Clark looked carefully at the letter but was mystified by Oswald's solemn demeanor. He was also perplexed as to why Oswald was making such a big deal about this new statement, since, from what he could tell, it said the same thing as the note that had been given to him on Sunday that the men had already voted down. Still, he agreed to convey the message to the men in the yard, and he asked for 30 minutes to get their reaction and report back. Oswald said 15 minutes. They compromised at 20. When Clark arrived back in D-Yard, he grabbed the loudspeaker and read out the latest message from Oswald. For four days, I have been using every resource available to me to settle peacefully the tragic situation here at Attica. We have met with you, have granted your requests for food, clothing, bedding, and water, for medical aid, for a federal court order against administrative reprisals. We have worked with the special citizen committee which you requested. We have acceded to 28 major demands which you have made and which the citizen committee had recommended. In spite of these efforts, you continue to hold hostages. I am anxious to achieve a peaceful resolution of the situation which now prevails there. I urgently request that you seriously consider my earlier appeal that 1. All hostages be released immediately unharmed. And 2. You join with me in restoring order to the facility. I must have your reply to this urgent appeal within the hour. I hope and pray your answer will be affirmative. The yard erupted. Wasn't this exactly what Oswald had said the day before? What was different? Hadn't he paid any attention to the reporter's interviews with the hostages? Didn't he understand that even the hostages wanted him to grant amnesty so that there could be a peaceful end to the situation? As the minutes ticked away, Clark reminded the group that they had to vote on whether to agree to Oswald's appeal or to reject it. 
To the question of whether they agreed to release the hostages and surrender now, the silence in the yard was deafening. Only one voice could be heard supporting this position. Why not take it? One man shouted. You got 28 out of 30 demands. You can't get no better than that. But in the wake of C.O. William Quinn's death, all understood that amnesty was a must. Any or all of them could be charged with felony murder, and those who had acted as leaders and spokesmen would be particularly vulnerable. As one man put it, he just couldn't agree, you know, to throw the guys that acted as spokesmen to the wolves. Clark restated the question, asking whether the men were rejecting Oswald's request for surrender. The roar of approval that echoed through the yard was overwhelming. As hostage Frank Wald marveled, from where I sat, it sounded almost as if everybody agreed to not accept it. However, the men in D Yard had no inkling that Oswald's request was in fact a demand. As prisoner Delu Gonzalez said later, the vote might have looked very different if they had said, either release the hostages or were coming in shooting. As important, especially after having brought newsmen in to interview hostages the night before, the men still could not believe that amnesty was not on the table. According to Gonzalez, a lot of prisoners wanted to hear it from Rockefeller. If he had said no amnesty and had given us an ultimatum, it would have made a lot of prisoners reconsider their position. Back in the steward's room, DOCS Deputy Commissioner Walter Dunbar handed out to the observers a copy of the statement that had just been delivered to Richard Clark. He tersely advised them that the building was being cleared for the retaking. If they planned on staying, they would not be allowed to leave the room until it was over. Arthur Eve couldn't believe it had come to this. Eve declared that if Rockefeller wouldn't even come to the aid of the 38 men who were on his staff, referring to the hostages, he's not fit to be the governor of this state. As Dunbar backed out the door, eager to extricate himself from the bitter remarks and incredulous stares of the observers, one question did stop him momentarily. Would gas masks be available to them if they stayed? No, Dunbar replied, they would not. A correction officer accompanying Dunbar added, with a cold stare, the truck bringing your gas masks got lost. Senator Dunn already knew that he was going to stay. Now that he had become personally involved in the retaking, consulting with Attica's officials as well as with the governor's aides at the prison, he was no longer really a member of the observer's committee. He, unlike the majority of the observers, had accepted the view that the prison had to be retaken by force, though he also felt that it was Rockefeller's refusal to come to Attica, a most crucial mistake, that had made a forcible retaking the only option. His only hope now was that even this would end all right. After all, as he had pointed out on more than one occasion in the last few days, the jail riot in Queens the year before had been forcibly ended and no one died. The other observers were not at all persuaded by Dunn's optimism, and most made no secret of the fact that they were terrified at the prospect of being in the prison when the hundreds of armed state troopers and correction officers they saw outside the window were unleashed. A vital difference between this and every other prison retaking, they reminded him, was that no firearms had been utilized in the others. From the moment that the door closed behind Dunbar, the observers struggled between their desire to flee 
and their feeling of responsibility to witness the retaking for the prisoners' sake. No one doubted that it would be violent, but some of them, including reporter Jim Ingram of the Michigan Chronicle, Congressman Herman Badillo, and D.C. public interest lawyer Julian Tepper, hoped that their presence in the prison might exert a tempering influence, although they too might be in danger. Too often they had experienced the hateful glares of the correction officers who periodically looked in on the group, and all had clearly heard the whispered threat of, we gonna get you motherfuckers, from one of these men. As Ingram noted wryly, they got guns and tension. We just got tension. Still, the majority decided to stick it out. Meanwhile, the sentries in a tunnel sent word that Richard Clark wanted to see Oswald again. After making sure that the state troopers assigned to the assault were now in position and ready, Oswald, Dunbar, and General O'Hara headed back to the DMZ. To their astonishment, however, Clark did not offer a response to their recent call to surrender. Instead, he told them that the inmates' committee did not understand certain aspects of the offer, particularly in reference to the 28 proposals, and therefore, they wanted to meet again with the observers' committee. Clark was doing his best to buy time, time to persuade Rockefeller of the importance of coming to the prison, time to persuade officials of how crucial amnesty was to any surrender. Absolutely not, Oswald exclaimed, and Clark's heart sank. It began to dawn on him that this might, in fact, be the end of the line with the commissioner. All right, he said to Oswald, in that case, could he just have some more time to further discuss Oswald's request with the men in the yard? Disgusted, Oswald spat that he could have twenty minutes and, turning on his heel, he left Dunbar and a state trooper at the gate with a radio. They were instructed to alert him the moment that Clark returned with his final answer. Oswald made his way to Superintendent Mancusi's office to report back to Douglas and the rest of the governor's men awaiting word. Sheepishly, he had to admit that he had given the men a bit more time. Silence fell on the room as the clock ticked and the deadline passed. After some discussion, the men assembled decided to move in at 10 o'clock a.m. Robert Douglas got up to call Rockefeller. After reporting that the second deadline given to the prisoners had just come and gone, Douglas handed the receiver to Oswald and then heard. When all three men had finished speaking to the governor, it was clear that he was done with any more discussions. Rockefeller's only parting instruction to the men was, keep me informed. Although Richard Clark thought it was possible that Oswald was bluffing, deep down he was scared. It was, he acknowledged, a bad sign that no observers had come that morning, since the state likely would keep them out if an attack was imminent. Still, he didn't know and wasn't sure whether he should be sounding an alarm in D-Yard or preparing the men for more talks. Uncertain of what to do, Clark and his compatriots decided that they somehow had to impress upon Oswald that if by any chance he was planning a forcible retaking that day, he should reconsider. The centerpiece of their plan depended upon one critical thing, that state officials did indeed care what happened to the hostages. In the pre-dawn hours of that morning, there had already been some discussion of how to use more effectively the state's desire to protect its own employees. 
According to Big Black Smith, there had been no escalation of anger toward hostages. But around 4 o'clock a.m., some of the prisoners had begun to wonder if it was now time to remind state officials that they did, in fact, have the ultimate power over their hostages so that these same officials wouldn't order an attack. As the clock ticked, hearing nothing that indicated the observers were on their way, the men in D-Yard decided that they would randomly select a group of eight hostages to take up onto the catwalks. They would surround each hostage with at least three prisoners carrying homemade knives and spears to suggest to the state that if it chose to come into Attica with force rather than to negotiate, it was risking the lives of its own men. As Roger Champin explained, we felt that by having hostages, we would also have the ability to more or less force them to keep their word. Killing these men definitely was not their intention. He went on, we wouldn't even consider harming the hostages, because they were our only means of negotiation. However, the very act of moving the hostages intensified anxiety in the yard. Within minutes, prisoners were arming themselves with whatever they could find. Pieces of lumber, baseball bats, anything. Others just began lots of praying and looking for cover. Seeing prisoners suddenly making their way over to the hostage circle greatly alarmed those within it as well. They started to tie our hands and feet, put blindfolds back on our eyes, Pappy Wald recalled, and then without explanation, some of the hostages were walked over to the catwalks. While he was worried about why he was being taken away, Wald was also well aware that his captors had, so far, been protecting us, and that they had done an excellent job of doing this, so he was more concerned about what was happening outside the prison walls to cause them to be moved. Some of the prisoners did try to explain what their plan was. Hostage Mike Smith was slightly relieved to learn that the prisoners were simply trying to get the time extended, but he also concluded by the panicked looks of some of the men surrounding him that they would indeed kill him if they thought it would save them, or if they were given the go-ahead to do so. Civilian hostage Ron Kozlowski hoped it was true that the prisoners intended to use them as insurance to deter anyone from trying to retake the prison. Still, he was worried and didn't quite know what to think. Whether he was being soothed or groomed for death, when his captor cut his wrist binding, combed his hair, gave him a Tums as well as a cigarette while they waited for the state to register their presence on the catwalk. As hostage Curly Watkins was being marched to the catwalk, he too was terrified but hoped for the best as he chatted nervously with his captor about shared acquaintances. Even those hostages who believed their move to the catwalk was a bluff were petrified by how risky this all was. For one thing, they weren't sure that the men assigned to be their executioners understood that they really weren't to be harmed. One of the prisoners had actually scrawled the word executioner on the handmade weapon he now held up on the catwalk, and it wasn't clear to the hostages if this was to deter the state or to indicate to the hostages what was in fact coming. More alarmingly, the hostages now wondered if the state really cared what happened to them. The governor had surely been shown the news footage of them begging for him to come to Attica. He had not come. Surely he had been told that they too supported amnesty and wanted him to reconsider his position. And yet, he had not done so. Now, they fretted, 
What made these prisoners think that seeing homemade knives at hostage throats or spears at their sides would prompt officials to do the right thing? But the prisoners were desperate and could think of no other tactic to keep troopers out of D-Yard. At 9.22 that morning, immediately after the hostages had been placed on the catwalks, a group of prisoners went into A-Tunnel with a loudspeaker to tell state officials that they meant business about resuming negotiations. We want the Citizens Committee in D-Block Yard, they yelled out. There are eight hostages up on the roof. It's up to you. Come in now with the Citizens Committee and Oswald. Walter Dunbar heard this and then hinted that if they released the hostages, such a meeting could take place. But when the prisoner reply came back negative, Dunbar simply left. Up on the catwalk, prisoners and hostages alike waited with hearts pounding for what might happen next. Wobbling slightly because it was hard to keep one's balance while blindfolded, hostage Mike Smith began having a serious conversation with one of his so-called executioners, Donald Noble. Noble was one of the two prisoners who had gone to great lengths to protect Mike from harm when the rebellion broke out five days earlier, and Mike was greatly relieved to hear this man's voice next to him once he had finally made it through D-Tunnel and up onto the catwalk. Mike had been worried for a few days now that the state might choose to sacrifice him and his fellow hostages, and he had felt the need to write a letter to his wife Sharon in case he didn't make it out of Attica alive. He had gotten hold of a pen from one of the other hostages, who had somehow managed to keep it hidden in his pocket, and secretly written her a note that he then secured deep in his wallet. With the minutes ticking by, Mike and Don both expressed deep sadness that the last four days had come down to this. Then, after telling each other how to reach their loved ones, they made a solemn pact that if anything happened to either of them, they would find the other's family members and make sure they knew how much they were loved. Mike told Don about the note to Sharon in his wallet, and Don promised to deliver it. No sooner had Mike Smith and Don Noble finished exchanging their personal information than they heard a sound that sent a chill down their spines. It was the ominous roar of helicopter blades revving up. Besides being able to hear it, Mike Smith recalled in horror, you could actually feel the concussion of the propellers. A Conservation Corps helicopter was flying over Attica in order to survey the situation in D-Yard before troopers would go in. One of the prisoners holding Richard Fargo hostage up on the catwalk also quaked at the sound of the helicopter, and he decided that the only way the state wouldn't attack was if it truly believed the hostages' lives were in jeopardy. Desperately trying to change the course of events, this prisoner then leaned over to give Fargo a nick on the neck, one that he hoped the men in the helicopter could see, while assuring the guard in a whisper, It's a sham, boss. It's a sham. C.O. G.B. Smith wanted to believe that these new, more aggressive maneuvers were indeed for show. He very clearly could hear somebody hollering, Stand the hostages up so they can see they are all right. Nevertheless, he was nearly immobilized with fear. If the state was willing to risk the lives of the hostages, then this couldn't possibly end well. 21. No Mercy
As the small Conservation Corps helicopter appeared directly above the prison walls, many of the nearly 1,300 men in D-Yard and up on the catwalks watched for some indication of what it was going to do. Some continued casting about for a weapon. Others just dove into and under anything that might offer them protection. Suddenly, everyone stopped in their tracks as the outline of an entirely different, much larger helicopter became visible on the horizon. Since this might be just a way to intimidate them, one prisoner thought, it was important to be calm and stand your ground. A few others wondered if the chopper might be delivering Rockefeller to the prison to finally meet with prisoners. Most men, however, had no such illusions, particularly when the second helicopter began dumping a thick powdery fog into the yard. It was obvious that an attack had begun. Within seconds, the air in D yard was opaque with a combination of CS and CN gas, a thick and powdery substance that quickly enveloped sickened, and felled every man it touched. In fact, CS gas, chemical name orthochlorobenzylidine, wasn't really a gas at all, but a fine white powder. Once dispersed, it hangs almost suspended in the air, causing tearing, nausea, and retching in those who inhale it. When the first helicopter flew over, Carlos Rocher was one of the men who thought that it might actually be Rockefeller, and, as he remembered, some of the guys started hollering, yelling, you know, cheering. But when the air began to vibrate anew as the second, much bigger helicopter began its tour over the yard, a deep fear seized them. Before they could run or hide anywhere, they found themselves engulfed in a white cloud that immediately made people throw up. I brought up everything that I ate, and then I started bringing up blood, recalled Rocher. Another prisoner began vomiting violently when a canister of the gas exploded right next to him, and the powder also caused his eyes to swell closed and his lips, nose, and lungs to burn as if on fire. So powerful was this substance that even the observers felt its effects over in the prison's administration building, in a room where the windows were completely shut. If the Rockefeller administration's goal had been, as General O'Hara later testified, to completely immobilize persons exposed to the CS gas so that prison officials could walk in and, with no one capable of stopping them, calmly retake control, they had succeeded in mere minutes. The gas was, however, accompanied by a violent assault. At 9.46 a.m., pursuant to both an official proclamation and an executive order issued by the governor, the New York State Police broadcast over its radio system the long-awaited command, Tell all your units to move in. As prisoners and hostages began stumbling and crawling through the thick, noxious air, phalanxes of gas-mask-shrouded troopers poured onto the catwalks with guns blazing. The troopers had removed their identification emblems, the badges affixed to their collars that indicated which troop they belonged to, as well as their name and rank, just before they went in. Trooper Captain William Dillon not only took off his nameplate and his captain's bars, but as he later recounted, he told his people to take them off too, because we weren't stopping traffic where a citizen would have the perfect right to know who they're being stopped by. It was a different thing. Trooper Gerard Smith explained it even more bluntly. Everybody started taking off their things 
so they couldn't identify what troop or identify to pinpoint the individual in case something happens. Whereas some of the troopers now heading into D-Yard were excited finally to take control and to show the prisoners who was boss, Tony Strollo was going in for one reason and one reason only, to rescue his brother, hostage Frank Strollo. Either way, these were men with much ammunition and only the flimsiest of plans as to how they were going to secure the facility, let alone actually retrieve the hostages unharmed. Worse, these were men who had spent the last five days being inundated with rumors about the animals inside who would kill them if they could. According to later blotter entries and store clerk records submitted by the state police, a total of 33 rifles had been sent to Attica in preparation for the retaking, and 217 shotguns had been passed out to the troopers from various troop supply trucks. There were also uncounted numbers of personal weapons. All this added up to an extraordinary concentration of firepower in the hands of members of law enforcement now buzzing from a toxic cocktail of hatred, fear, and aggression. On September 13, there was an astonishing number of men waiting outside of Attica to wield these weapons. In addition to the 550 uniformed men from the New York State Police, augmented by BCI, Bureau of Criminal Investigation Personnel, for a total force of approximately 600, there were 232 sheriff's deputies at Attica Correctional Facility, armed and ready to enter the prison, on top of which there were sheriffs from Genesee County and park police from Genesee and Schuyler counties. Although state officials later insisted that these other members of law enforcement had joined the assault against the state's wishes, both sheriffs and park police insisted that they had been invited in. One officer from Genesee State Park explained that when the state police found out we had rifles, they asked us if we would stand by a window there in C-Block and be there if needed for any reason. What is more, he explained, it was an NYSP trooper who gave them the okay to pick a target and to shoot to kill, to help them to eliminate a threat to the hostages. COs from Attica as well as some from Auburn also felt welcome to join the assault and, armed with personal as well as state-issued weapons, they stationed themselves on the second and third floors of A-Block in firing position. Although it was reassuring to many of these men that they had so much firepower supporting them, they also realized that this also meant a very real danger of being caught in the crossfire. Troopers like Tony Strollo were especially concerned about this because so many were wielding shotguns loaded with buckshot, which, because it scattered, could be disastrous. Another real concern was visibility. For starters, there had been no discussion of the amount of time that the gas was supposed to be allowed to work, and so the men all proceeded out into air so thick with powder it was hard to see a thing, particularly through the thick rubber of a gas mask. One trooper was so taken aback by the power and density of the gas that had just been dropped that, years later, he still couldn't believe his superiors had sent him in through such a heavy fog. Despite the trooper's impaired vision, from the instant they entered the prison and began moving out onto the catwalks above Attica's yards, they began shooting. The hostages up on the catwalks were right in the line of fire. Hostage Richard Fargo felt almost faint with fear when he realized how wrong the prisoners had been to think that the presence of hostages on the catwalk 
would prevent police from shooting in the area. Civilian hostage Ron Kozlowski felt his stomach lurch as he heard the unmistakable sounds of guns fired all around him. Seconds before, there had been a prisoner right next to him with a handmade knife at his neck. And the next thing he knew, that man had been hit and wasn't there anymore. As the bullets hit him, the prisoner's body jerked and fell backward, and the knife that he had been holding sliced in erratic gouge from Ron's neck up to his hairline and then back down across the shoulder blade. Horrified, Ron dropped to the floor, curled up in a ball, and laid still so that no one would shoot at him. But to his dismay, the bullets were coming like rain, and because so many of them were ricocheting off the catwalk, his face was also being blasted by jagged shards of cement. Mike Smith felt the impact of the prisoner on his right being shot twice, the last shot literally catapulting him over the railing of the catwalk. In a futile attempt to save both himself and Mike from being hit, Don Noble pulled him to the left as the man immediately behind him received a fatal volley of gunfire. But the shots reached them anyway. Mike's abdomen was on fire as four bullets ripped across it in a straight line. He was also shot in the arm, which felt as if it had been torn from his body. The bullets that entered Mike's stomach, dead center right between his navel and genitals, exploded upon impact, which sent shrapnel downward to his spine. One exiting slug took the base of Mike's spine along with it, leaving a hole about the size of a grapefruit in his intestines. All Mike could hear around him as the shooting kept going on was people crying, people dying, and people screaming. As he lay curled up, bleeding profusely, Mike suddenly found himself looking up into the eyes of a trooper who had a shotgun pointed directly at his head. Somewhere close by, he heard a correction officer yell to the trooper, He is one of us, and started to breathe a sigh of relief. Then, he realized sickeningly that the trooper had simply recited his weapon on Don Noble, who also lay bleeding next to him. Weakly, Mike tried to tell the trooper, He saved my life. To his relief, as he faded in and out of consciousness, he saw that Noble seemed to have been spared. Nearby, hostage Dean Stenshorn tried desperately to see what was happening around him through the blindfold over his eyes. He wanted to get shelter from the bullets whizzing around him, but could only stand there frozen. He could hear a prisoner say, don't kill him, and realized in that moment that he had much more to fear from the troopers barreling over the catwalk toward him than from the men who had counted on his life being a bargaining chip with the state. As hostage Curly Watkins suddenly found himself on the ground with a prisoner lying heavily on top of him, it dawned on him as well that, though this prisoner could very well have killed him should he have wanted to, he was still alive. And yet, ironically, he still might die from so-called friendly fire. John Hill, known in the yard as Dakajawaya, was one of the prisoners holding a hostage on the catwalk of B Block when the gunfire erupted. In that second, he realized how completely the men in D Yard had failed to grasp the state's intentions. We felt somewhat protected by the presence of Dunn, and even the media. We felt, I think, that there just couldn't have been a massacre with media watching. As he came up from under a barricade the prisoners had built on B Catwalk, where he had been crouching for cover, he was shot. He was then hit with the butt of another trooper's weapon, 
which hurled him over the catwalk railing onto the cement handball court below. As Hill fell, all he could hear was people screaming and crying. People like Edward Kowalczyk. In the first few seconds of the retaking, prisoner Kowalczyk was shot seven times as he tried desperately to find cover on a catwalk. After he fell to the ground in agony with gunshot wounds to the chest, abdomen, back, and base of his penis, he stared up in horror to see a state trooper looming over him. The trooper threw him a knife and ordered that I stab my fellow brother, Carlos, who was a prisoner laying just to the right of me, and who appeared to be also seriously injured. When I refused to do so, the trooper laughed and tried to put the knife in my hand, but I wouldn't hold it and threw it back down. The trooper then picked up the knife, gave it to another trooper and left, after which Kowalczyk passed out. Prisoner Jose Quinones was also up on a catwalk when the gas dropped and the shooting began. He couldn't believe what he was hearing and seeing. Even as bullets rained down into D-Yard, with many hundreds of state troopers, COs, and officers from the BCI firing from the roof of A-Block alone, a state police helicopter hovered overhead, broadcasting a message through a loudspeaker. Surrender peacefully. You will not be harmed. Surrender peacefully. You will not be harmed. Suddenly, someone grabbed the back of his neck and forced him to stand, then struck him with something behind his ear, whereupon state troopers tear-gassed him directly in the face and began to beat him in the head, leaving him screaming in pain from second- and third-degree chemical burns. Even some of the troopers were overwhelmed by how quickly this retaking had disintegrated into chaos. Tony Strollo just kept stepping over the bodies as he tried to find his brother, while Trooper Gerard Smith felt almost paralyzed by the sheer madness around him. Smith found himself staring incredulously as men trying to avoid the fusillade of bullets slid underneath the bottom rail of the catwalks, dropping a full 15 feet to the ground below. Not that that took them to safety. Looking over the railing, Smith saw a trooper approach a prisoner who was lying still on the pavement and shoot him in the head. Strollo and Smith's fellow troopers, the correction officers, and the other members of law enforcement were just getting started. After clearing the catwalks so that there wasn't a single man left standing on any of them, the NYSP launched its ground assault. It was instantly clear to everyone huddled there the troopers and COs were no longer merely trying to regain control of the facility. This was already done. They now seemed determined to make Attica's prisoners pay a high price for their rebellion. A 22-year-old prisoner who had remained locked in C-Block for the duration of the uprising later recounted how two C-Block guards came to his cell as the retaking began simply to abuse him. According to this man, these COs slammed his face against the window bars and ordered him to watch and see what happens to fucking convicts who didn't obey the rules and try to run something. As he was being hurt, he was horrified also to learn that other prisoners out in the yard were being shot in spite of the fact that they were waving their hands high in the air and begging that their lives be spared. Frank Big Black Smith simply couldn't believe the horror unfolding around him either. Big Black had suspected that the state might come in there and knock some heads and bust some heads. But once he started seeing people get opened up with shotguns, 
He understood that they never remotely anticipated this level of savagery. To Jomo Joka Omowale, it was like a war zone, a phrase that would be heard again and again in later descriptions from those who lived through the retaking, and the callousness of the shooters was hard for him to comprehend. It was very painful to see all these old and crippled guys getting shot. They were in D-yard because they had no place else to go. Carlos Roche was also overwhelmed by the horror of the assault. He looked over at the negotiating tables, and everything over there was down. And then he could see wounded and dead men scattered around the yard, and also piling on top of one another in the confusion. One man spoke of falling on top of other men right after being hit with gunfire, and then feeling other wounded men falling on top of him. I couldn't breathe. You know, people was on top of me, and they kept telling us, keep your head down so I'm trying to crawl and I'm trying to get the person off of me. 19-year-old prisoner Melvin Marshall just couldn't believe that he had landed in this nightmare simply for violating parole. He lay on the ground, gasping for breath in the gas that still hung like a heavy blanket over the yard. Then a trooper kicked him and brought a gun butt crashing down on his head. Prisoner Rodney Zobrist, who'd hit the ground for safety the minute he heard the choppers overhead, dared to peer out from under his arms, only to see troopers all around him shooting at random, and to watch as several men he knew were hit by gunfire. To his horror, one of those troopers spotted Rodney, marched over to him, and shoved a shotgun in his mouth and then walked away. Lorenzo Skinner, like Jomo, was caught in an unbelievable barrage of gunfire that seemed to be coming from everywhere. As he fell to his knees and tried to cover his face against the tear gas canisters that still were exploding around him, a trooper pushed his face down into a mud puddle and told him not to move or he would be killed. Forced to suck in large amounts of water through his mouth and nose in order to breathe, this young prisoner felt that he was drowning. Even the men who scrambled to surrender were subjected to unspeakable abuse. One prisoner who'd already been shot in the back was ordered to stand up with his hands over his head. Because of the wound, he was unable to raise his hand to his head. Nevertheless, another trooper ordered him to remove the football helmet that he had been wearing for protection. When the wounded man couldn't do that either, the officer proceeded to kick the helmet off of his head. As cruel as these events were, it was the acts of cold-blooded killing and attempted killing that made the scene especially terrifying. One prisoner watched in disbelief as two troopers aimed their guns at a man trying to take cover in a trench. The troopers instructed the man to climb out of the hole with his hands on his head, which he did. Then, he was shot in the chest by the trooper who had told him to keep his hands on his head. Another prisoner who had been shot in the abdomen and in the leg was ordered to get up and walk, which he was unable to do. The trooper then shot him in the head with a handgun. Trooper Gerard Smith watched his fellow officers storm through the tent city and happen upon foxholes that prisoners were trying to hide in, and then witnessed one of these troopers as he just stuck the rifle into the hole and pulled the trigger. 21-year-old Chris Reed was gunned down with four bullets, including one that exploded and took out a big chunk of his left thigh. He listened in terror as troopers debated in front of him whether to kill him or let him bleed to death. As they discussed this, 
The troopers had fun jamming their rifle butts into his injuries and dumping lime onto his face and injured legs until he fell unconscious. When he awoke, he found himself stacked up with the dead bodies. I never saw human beings treated like this, another prisoner later recalled. He couldn't understand. Why all the hatred? But it wasn't just any hatred. It was racial hatred. As one prisoner was told by a trooper who had a gun trained on him, he would soon be dead because we haven't killed enough niggers. Everywhere there were cries of, keep your nigger nose down. Don't you know state troopers don't like niggers? Don't move, nigger, you're dead. Underscoring just how much racial hatred was fueling trooper rage in D-Yard, one prisoner, William Maynard, tried to carry Jomo to safety after he had been shot multiple times. As Maynard struggled along, a CO ordered him to stop and put his hands in the air. As he dutifully put his hands up, still trying to balance Jomo on his shoulders, the CO shot him twice in the forearms. As Maynard fell in a heap, with Jomo on top of him, this same officer loaded up his gun and shot Jomo six times right on top of me and kicked me in the face and says both the niggers are dead and went on. To the shock of the hostages who had been left in the hostage circle and who were now, like the prisoners, trying to find cover, the prisoners were still trying to keep them protected even as their own were being shot. Minutes before the assault had begun, Herb Blyden had instructed Akil Aljundi and nine or ten other men to stay in front of the hostages and not to let harm come to them. Despite their terror at being left so exposed, these men held their ground until they too were gunned down. Aljundi was shot in the left hand by a 270 rifle while guarding the hostage circle and suffered an injury so serious that he could see through his hand. He was also hit by a bullet fragment under his right eye. The hostages fared little better. When C.O. Dean Wright, huddled into the smallest ball he could make, suddenly felt somebody reach down and turn him over, he was relieved, thinking he was finally being rescued. Then he panicked. As he looked up, he found himself staring into the barrel of a 12-gauge shotgun in the hands of a New York State trooper who looked like he was about to pull the trigger. Had somebody else not yelled, he's one of ours, he's one of ours, just then, he realized, with sickening clarity, he would have been dead. After being shot in the back, guard Robert Curtis also felt the fear of imminent death when a trooper kept knocking him over every time he tried to sit up. He shouted as loudly as he could that he was an officer, but still had to beg the trooper not to shoot him. Hostage G.B. Smith might also have been shot dead, had it not been for fellow hostage John Stockholm. As Stockholm remembered, G.B. started to get out of the pile and a trooper tried to level his gun at him until I said he's one of ours. So thick was the gunfire that morning that, just as Tony Strollo had feared, a member of the assault force couldn't avoid being shot by his own. Hostage Don Almeter was stunned to see a state policeman who was down and bleeding. Since the prisoners had no guns, clearly his own men had shot him. That trooper was Lieutenant Joseph Christian, and he had been running toward the hostage circle when, he later maintained, a prisoner tried to hit him, in response to which, he said, troopers up on B Catwalk 
let loose their guns to save him. Thanks to prisoner Virgil Horace Mulligan, however, at least one hostage was pulled out of harm's way when the bullets began spraying the circle. That hostage would later testify before Mulligan's parole board that he had saved his life. The overall situation in D-Yard was astonishing devastation wrought in a remarkably short period of time. Prisoner James Lee Asbury recalled that merely ten minutes after the assault on the prison began, no matter where he looked, all he could see was blood and water. One 19-year-old prisoner, Charles Pernasales, recoiled from the sight and smell of so much blood and the sound of so much screaming. Frank Lott, one of the authors of the original July Manifesto, shook his head in disbelief. Guys were laying all over. They tried to get up and were shot down. Even though NYSP officials reported that Attica was fully secured by 10.05 a.m., the observers who had waited out the retaking locked in the steward's room could still hear shots being fired inside the prison as late as 10.24 a.m., and others reported hearing gunfire from inside the prison even an hour later. Ultimately, the human cost of the retaking was staggeringly high. 128 men were shot, some of them multiple times. Less than half an hour after the retaking had commenced, nine hostages were dead, and at least one additional hostage was close to death. Twenty-nine prisoners had been fatally shot. Many of the deaths in D-Yard, both hostages and prisoners, were caused by the scatter of buckshot, and still others resulted from the devastating impact of unjacketed bullets. The hostages, both those who'd been taken to the catwalks to serve as bargaining chips and those who'd been held in a circle in the yard, paid a terrible price for the state's excessive use of force. Correction Sergeant Edward Cunningham, a father of eight, lay dead, hit in the head by a buckshot pellet that then traveled and severed his cervical spinal cord. Mike Smith's dear friend John Darkangelo, whose first child had just been born and who had transferred to Attica only seven weeks before, was killed by a .270 rifle wielded by a state trooper sniper who'd apparently been aiming at several prisoners. Guard Carl Vallone, father of four, died from traumatic shock and laceration of the brain caused by a gunshot wound to the head, as well as bleeding from his abdominal organs caused by a wound to the chest. B-Block Captain Richard Lewis died when a bullet went through his back and destroyed his aorta. CO John Monteleone died when he took a bullet to the heart from a personal weapon, a 44 Magnum. Among the civilian deaths were industrial foreman and father of eight, Elmer Hardy, killed by a shot to the head, and senior account clerk Herbert Jones. Principal account clerk Elon Werner, as well as his nephew, CO guard Ronnie Werner, both perished from internal bleeding caused by gunshots. Ultimately, five died from double-O buckshot. The rest of the group was shot by state police snipers firing .270 caliber rifles from the roofs and upper floors of A and C blocks. The hostages who survived the attack suffered significant injuries. In addition to the horrific wounds Mike Smith sustained, Lieutenant Robert Curtis suffered a gunshot wound to his back, while civilian employee Gordon Knickerbocker suffered a gunshot to the head and fellow civilian Al Mitzel received bullet fragments in his back. The death and injury toll among the prisoners was much higher. 
21-year-old William Allen had been killed, shot by bullets from a 38 caliber handgun, as well as by double-O pellets, and Melvin Ware, age 23, had died from multiple gunshots, including two 70 caliber bullets from a trooper's gun and double-O buckshot from an officer who had fired at him two or three times with a 12-gauge Deerslayer shotgun. 29-year-old Lorenzo McNeil died in D-Yard after a trooper up on D-Catwalk shot him in the back of the head. 25-year-old Milton Manyweather was shot to death, riddled with 270 bullets to his back, chest, and right lung. 22-year-old Charles Carlos Prescott was felled by the double-O buckshot that pockmarked his body on a catwalk. Perhaps no shooting was more brutal than that of Kenneth B. Malloy. Malloy was shot 12 times at close range, pumped full of bullets from both a .357 and a .38 caliber weapon, which led to lacerations of the brain and destruction of the lungs and heart. Malloy was shot with such vicious abandon that his eyes were ripped apart from the shards of bone splintering in his head. A number of prisoners killed had, according to several witnesses, actually still been alive after troopers had control of the facility. One of these dead men was 35-year-old Samuel Melville, the so-called mad bomber who spent time trying to educate his fellow prisoners in Attica's classrooms and had penned the expose of profits derived from prison labor in Attica's laundry. Prisoners maintained that Melville had been alive following the assault and had dutifully tried to surrender, but by day's end he'd been shot to death from a one-ounce lead shotgun slug that had entered the upper left part of his chest, fragmented, and subsequently ripped through his left lung. Then there was Thomas Hicks, who was riddled by double-O buckshot. He had been shot in the back with ammunition that perforated his right lung and heart, and also suffered a gunshot wound to his right buttock. Although his account was disputed by state officials, a National Guardsman who came into the prison to deal with the injured inmates in the immediate aftermath of the retaking insisted he saw Hicks alive after the prison was fully in the trooper's control. He said that he remembered this prisoner in particular because he heard a correction officer grabbing him and saying to his fellow guards, Look who we have here. We got Mr. Hicks. And then, after forcing Hicks to his knees and telling him to put his hands on his head, he threatened to kill him while at the same time kicking him in the throat. Two prisoners, Larry Barnes and Melvin Marshall, also later described watching Tommy Hicks get shot after the original shooting ceased. According to Marshall, Hicks was hit with a barrage of gunfire, after which he saw troopers walk over to Hicks's body, take the butt end of the gun, pound the flesh in the ground, kick it, pound it, shoot it again. 21-year-old Elliot L.D. Barkley, who had been in so many respects the face of Attica with his wire-rimmed granny glasses and his impassioned speeches, was also said by various accounts, including those of fellow prisoners Frank Big Black Smith, Frank Lott, Carl Jones, and Melvin Marshall, as well as New York Assemblyman Arthur Eve, to have been alive well after the police had ceased to have even a tenuous rationale for shooting anyone. According to a later autopsy report, L.D. was killed by gunshot wounds to his back from a tumbling .270 caliber slug in the southeast quadrant of D-Yard. When exactly L.D. had been shot to death, and whether the bullet that killed him was in fact
tumbling or had been shot at him point blank would become major issues of contention in the years that followed. Many prisoners at Attica believed strongly, though, that the state had murdered him. Back in the administration building, the observers and state officials had no real idea what was happening in D Yard, but the sounds of gunfire and the fog of the gas did not bode well. At 11.46 a.m., State Senator John Dunn demanded to be allowed in to see results of the assault. Walter Dunbar and Rockefeller's attorney Howard Shapiro reluctantly gave him a tour. What Dunn saw in the yard appalled him. Thirty to forty correction officers striking half a dozen inmates who were being forced to run a gauntlet. As he recalled years later, I observed naked men running in a direction toward me through a row of correction officers who were striking them with their batons on buttocks. This abuse was so egregious that Dunn told Dunbar, I shouldn't be seeing this, and it had better stop right away. He was assured that it would. The other observers did not hear any official news of the retaking until 12.16 p.m., when DOCS Deputy Commissioner Walter Dunbar finally came to the steward's room to update them. He painted a picture of success. The state police and correction officers had handled prisoners with excellent discipline and without brutality, he reported proudly. When Tom Wicker asked whether they could now go and see the prisoners, however, Dunbar told him quite brusquely that a visit would not be possible while the operation was still underway. Dunbar's report only intensified the unease in the room, but, to everyone's relief, John Dunn, who had stayed with prison officials during the retaking, appeared about an hour later and also gave a relatively optimistic briefing based on what he had been told by prison officials. The place was completely under control. The wounded prisoners were now in the prison hospital. The wounded staff were in local hospitals. And the rest of the prisoners were now being rehoused in cells. There was, in fact, little reason to feel that this retaking had been a success or that things would now be all right. Although no numbers had yet been released, or would be for several days, everyone could assume from the sounds alone that the death toll must be high. Even from outside the prison, the cacophony of bullets hitting walls and flesh could be heard so loudly and clearly that African-American reporter John Johnson found himself overcome with emotion as he tried to report the retaking to the nation far from Attica's walls. It's an awful scene, he said into the camera as he choked up. I think that people are dying in there. The observers were also quite certain that something horrific had just occurred. Reverend Martin Chandler recounted, I saw them bringing out bodies, bringing out folks and just kind of putting them on the ground, and they were lined up all the way down the wall from the prison and from there to the gate. William Kunstler was sickened by what had just taken place inside Attica. He personally had experienced a level of hostility that left him stunned, including walking down the road outside the prison when a car with four men in it came at us. They made a feint as if to run us down, and I could see they were laughing. He couldn't even fathom what the men in D-Yard must have suffered when law enforcement came in. In the hours to come, still awaiting word from inside the prison, Kunstler found himself sitting alone, unable to speak, with tears running down his face. Inside the prison, Roger Champin also wept. Like many of his fellow prisoners,
He couldn't understand why this had happened. Why didn't someone say they're going to come in with guns and shoot you people to death? 22. Spinning Disaster In contrast to the observers or prisoners like Champ, Rockefeller's men on the scene seemed a bit startled, but largely unmoved by the carnage of the retaking they had authorized. To be sure, they were taken aback by how quickly the operation went. But overall, they were relieved that everything had seemed to go so well, and that the performance of the state police had been magnificent, as General O'Hara later described it to Rockefeller. Douglas delivered his report of the retaking to Rockefeller late on the morning of the 13th, complete with a tally of the number of hostages who had survived. The governor seemed concerned, above all, with making sure that the nation understood what a success the retaking, in fact, was. Well aware that the assault he ordered could have resulted in all of the hostages being killed, Rockefeller was elated that so many had, in fact, managed to make it out of the prison alive. Commissioner Oswald, however, was finding it much harder to conjure up anything positive about what had just happened. He would have to go speak to the large crowd of family members and reporters now gathered outside the prison, and even he could smell the acrid scent of blood in the air. Though he still believed that morning's death and devastation unavoidable, it made him ill to think about it. I think I have some feeling now of how Truman must have felt when he decided to drop the A-bomb, he remarked to those around him that morning. After consulting with Department of Corrections Public Relations Director Gerald Houlihan and Deputy Commissioner Walter Dunbar about the wording, Oswald emerged from the prison to give a statement to the press at 10.40 a.m. First, he reiterated his version of what had led to the retaking in the first place, namely that negotiations had reached a stalemate and, therefore, the state had no choice but to go in. He also made clear what he felt had been at stake that morning. As he put it, to delay the action any longer would not only jeopardize innocent lives, but would threaten the security of the entire correctional system of this state. Becoming more passionate, he went on, the armed rebellion of the type we have faced threatens the destruction of our free society. We cannot permit that destruction to happen. It has indeed been an agonizing decision. Almost two hours later, with the air around the prison still thick with tear gas and the periodic sounds of guns still being fired, Houlihan and Dunbar gave additional press statements, this time offering more specifics regarding the fate of the hostages, since, according to the Gannett News Service, what every reporter was demanding to know was, how did they die? Without even blinking, Houlihan stated, I understand several had their throats cut. Some of their throats were slit. How many? The reporter pressed. Seven, seven or eight, he continued. Were they all killed by prisoners? All nine of them? Yes, stated Houlihan unabashedly. A few hours later, Walter Dunbar provided his own blood-curdling twist to the rumors of atrocities committed by the prisoners. During tours of the prison, he conducted later that day with a group of legislators, including Arthur Eve and Herman Badillo, and then with members of the press, Dunbar regaled everyone with a vivid tale of state officials yelling at the prisoners to give up the hostages, to which one of them responded, This is your answer, 
and then proceeded to stick a knife in the hostage's stomach. After that, Dunbar went on, the awfulness only escalated. Not only did the other prisoners slit the throats of other hostages, but worse, one of them took a knife and grabbed young officer Mike Smith and castrated him, and took this man's organs and stuck them in his mouth in clear view of us all. We saw it. We saw it. Then, with a final flourish, Dunbar took pains to point out the particular inmate who had stuffed hostage Michael Smith's genitals in his mouth and slit his throat. The prisoner he pointed to, now lying on a table and very obviously being tortured in full view of the group, was Big Blacksmith. Arthur Eve and Herman Badillo, who had gotten to know Big Black during the time they spent in the yard, were dismayed but also so sickened by the tale they didn't quite know how to react. Eve at last mustered the strength to ask Dunbar how they knew it was this particular prisoner who had committed the atrocity. We saw it, Dunbar replied. We have it on film. Later that night, Dunbar sat down with several reporters, including Lawrence Beaupre of the Rochester Times Union, and repeated this story, which had already been spreading like wildfire among the troopers who'd seen Mike Smith bleeding from the gut and then heard that this was because he had been castrated by the biggest black man in the yard. By that hour, so-called eyewitness accounts included not only this castration, but claims as well about how the prisoners had also mutilated faces with knives and disemboweled a guard. These horrific stories electrified the press as much as the day's earlier news that all of the dead hostages had been murdered in cold blood by knife-wielding inmates. And to top off these stories, according to a statement sent out on the AP wire by the end of the day, a spokesman for Governor Nelson A. Rockefeller said several of the hostages had been dead for several hours before state moved into the prison in force. This news item from the highest office in the state of New York would turn out to have been based on nothing but the wholly unfounded opinions of at least five correction officials who had called into a hotline set up by Wim Van Eckern, a deputy commissioner of corrections based in Albany, to discuss their thoughts on the retaking. During one such call, Alan Mills, the director of the Department of Correction Industries, offered his opinion that the hostages had been dead a long time, which indicated to him that the prisoners never intended to release them. The inflammatory stories of prisoner depravity reported by New York State officials found their way onto the front pages of the nation's most highly regarded newspapers as dawn broke the morning after the retaking. In this worst of American prison riots, the New York Times reported, several of the hostages, prison guards and civilian employees, died when convicts slashed their throats with knives. The paper then went on to editorialize, the deaths of the hostages reflect a barbarism wholly alien to our civilized society. Prisoners slashed the throats of utterly helpless unarmed guards. The piece noted that the inmates responsible for the killing of the hostages at Attica Prison will be liable for the death penalty under New York state law. The New York Daily News, in an article headlined, I Saw Seven Throats Cut, recounted the ordeal of one trooper who experienced the agony of witnessing the massacre etched into his sweating face after seeing the cons just slit throats. After informing its readers that nine hostages were killed by inmates, 
The Los Angeles Times quoted Governor Rockefeller's view that these were cold-blooded killings by revolutionary militants. The Washington Post also reported convicts kill nine hostages. Thanks to the Associated Press Wire Service, the story of prisoner barbarism made headline news in the local newspapers of almost every mid-sized city and small town in America. Whipped into a frenzy by all the inflammatory press reports, citizen telegrams flooded state and prison officials from the governor on down, expressing both support for the strong stand they had taken for law and order and fury at the prisoners who had launched the rebellion. One of the more blunt messages read, Amnesty no, Smith & Wesson yes, good job. Another writer expressed his opinion that there should have been no surviving inmates after the cell block was cleared. The observers were also attacked. Too bad that Wicker and Kunstler got out alive, read one letter jointly signed by a husband and wife. The letter to the editor's sections of the country's magazines and newspapers were soon filled with equally virulent expressions of rage toward the murderous convicts, those desperately sick men whose lawlessness cannot be tolerated, and those evil, vicious enemies of society, not to mention the thoughtless idiots on the outside who support them. In the immediate aftermath of the retaking, though, not all citizens and media wanted prisoners to pay an even higher price than they already had for their uprising. Some felt that the nation needed to take more time to assess what had happened at Attica and openly questioned the violence of the retaking. A week after the retaking, talk show host David Frost, for example, scrapped his regularly scheduled 8.30 Monday night show on New York City's Channel 5, WNEW, in favor of moderating a live 90-minute discussion of Attica that offered some more critical perspectives on the way the rebellion had been ended. Those he invited to join him included Leo Zeffaretti, head of Correction Officers Benevolent Association of New York City, Attica observers Clarence Jones and Louis Steele, and one guard who had been held during the Tombs Rebellion the previous year. After a heated discussion with various opposing views, Frost closed by saying gravely, we end with a prayer for everybody who lost somebody. There were also those who went public with their feelings that the men in the prison might have rebelled for good reason and had shown remarkable humanity toward others throughout the siege. As one citizen wrote to Time, the inmates, branded animals by many, were animals only by virtue of the conditions under which they were forced to live. For a fact, zoo animals live better than do these prisoners, and zoo animals are not even supposedly being rehabilitated. Several notable penal reformers also expressed their dismay at how law enforcement handled the retaking, as did several prison reform publications, such as Penal Digest. The NAACP also chimed in. Its official publication, The Crisis, referred to what had happened as the awesome Attica tragedy. Mainstream black publications such as Ebony tried to focus on the necessity of finding the cure for prison riots, rather than simply blaming them on depraved inmates. After the rebellion's end, some members of Congress weighed in as well. Henry Bellman, a Republican senator from Oklahoma, stated that he was stunned and outraged by the violent and bloody episode at New York State's Attica State Prison, a slaughter of human life that was more horrifying than any such event in recent times. To him, 
Prison riots were inevitable as long as our prisons remain in the condition they are in. And, as important, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration set up in 1964 by President Lyndon Johnson to offer substantial new support to both police and prisons has not used its resources to change the system, but rather to perpetuate it. Perhaps no congressman was more outspoken, though, than Attica observer Herman Badillo. He tried to make clear to his fellow members of the House that the retaking had been a tragedy of monumental proportions. There should have been no rush to end the rebellion in this violent way, particularly, he pointed out, since the prisoners were going nowhere and the hostages were being protected. Even the early demand for transport to a non-imperialist country had no support at all, as the rebellion wore on, he explained, which, in his view, was extraordinary, because I understand there were more than 200 prisoners who had life sentences. While the state tried to focus Americans' attention on alleged prisoner depravity, younger Americans and those in the anti-war and civil rights movements also weren't buying it. An article that appeared in The Nation on September 27, 1971, summed up their views and concerns. Attica will evoke the bloodiest prison rebellion in U.S. history. It will take its place alongside Kent State, Jackson State, Me Lai, and other traumatic events that have shaken the American conscience and incited searing controversy over the application of force and the pressures that provoke it. Since most of Attica's prisoners are black, many blacks saw the event as yet another manifestation of America's deep-rooted racism. White liberals, and not liberals alone, interpreted Attica as, at the very least, a measure of the bankruptcy of the U.S. prison system. People from all political persuasions and age groups could at least agree that the American prison system was in serious trouble. From the point of view of the left, this stemmed from racism and neglect, whereas from the perspective of conservative power brokers like Nelson Rockefeller, this was thanks to the highly organized revolutionary tactics of militants. Indeed, it was Rockefeller's deeply held belief that he had thwarted a revolutionary plot to destabilize the nation that allowed him to take such undiluted pride in how things had transpired on the morning of September 13. When the governor faced the media on the day after the retaking, he not only reiterated the falsehood that the prisoners had rejected all efforts at a peaceful settlement, forced a confrontation, and carried out cold-blooded killings they had threatened from the outset, but he shared with the media his enthusiasm for how the Attica Rebellion had ended. We can all be grateful, he began, that the skill and courage of the state police and correction officers supported by the National Guard and Sheriff's deputies, saved the lives of 29 hostages, and that their restraint held down casualties among prisoners as well. Rockefeller's positive feelings about the decision he had made to take Attica with force had everything to do with the reaction he had received from the White House. At about 11.30 on the morning of the 13th, he first recounted the events of the retaking to Nixon aide John Ehrlichman, who soon afterward conveyed Rockefeller's message to the president. By 12.37 p.m., President Nixon was in the Oval Office discussing all that he had just learned about the retaking with fellow Republicans Robert Dole, Alexander M. Haig, Jr., and H.R. Haldeman. They killed seven of the guards, a bloody business, 
Nixon told his aides. And worse, he went on, one of the guards had been castrated. Nixon was clear to the men assembled that, in his view, Rockefeller handled it well because, as the president put it, you see, it's the black business. He had to do it. To a one, these men felt strongly that this rebellion was of a piece with the revolutionary plots that had recently been hatched in the California system by black activists such as Angela Davis, famed leader from the Communist Party. All those assembled in the president's office agreed that while the morning's events made a particularly gruesome story, news of the slashings and castrations would go a long way toward discrediting America's bleeding hearts, like the Tom Wickers of the world. I think this is going to have a hell of a salutary effect on future prison riots, Nixon said, just like Kent State had a hell of a salutary effect. They can talk all they want about force, but that is the purpose of force. When the president finally spoke with Rockefeller at 1.38 p.m., he wanted him to know that the White House was behind him 100%. I know you have had a hard day, Nixon greeted Rockefeller, but I want you to know that I just back you to the hilt. The courage you showed and the judgment in not granting amnesty, it was right. I don't care what they say, you did the right thing. The governor was thrilled. Given the castration of the guard, Rockefeller stressed, they did indeed need to go in with force. When Rockefeller went on to report that, actually, the prisoners had killed some guards prior to the retaking, Nixon reacted more cautiously. You can prove that, can't you? He said warily, to which Rockefeller gave his assurances. Of course, the governor conceded, it was likely to be a Catholic hospital that would be dealing with the hostage deaths, and therefore, it's outside of our jurisdiction, implying that he might have had some sway over media reports had the hospital been a publicly run and funded institution. But he was confident that his information would nevertheless be corroborated. The bottom line, Rockefeller confirmed for Nixon, was that the entire rebellion had been masterminded by African Americans. The whole thing was led by the blacks, he said, and he assured the president that he had sent in the troopers only when they were in the process of murdering the guards. Rockefeller did warn the president that he was probably going to get some flack from New York City's mayor, John Lindsay, whom Nixon referred to dismissively as the new Democrat, the convert since Lindsay had recently changed political parties, and that the mayor would probably say that I should have gone up and all these deaths would have been saved. But Nixon seemed unconcerned. To the idea that Rockefeller should have gone to Attica, he said, No, sir, no, sir. After Nixon reiterated how much everyone in Washington supported his moves at the prison that morning, Rockefeller thanked him profusely and signed off by saying, We'll do the mopping up now. As far as the families of the hostages as well as the prisoners were concerned, the mopping up was extremely slow and didn't seem to take them into account. Although the families of several hostages had been at the prison when they heard helicopters swooping over the yard, they had had to leave because, as Richard Fargo's wife June explained, the tear gas was so bad we couldn't stay. Still, they felt certain that as soon as there was word on the fate of their loved ones inside, Someone from the Department of Corrections would call them and let them know where to go and what to do next. But in fact, there was no system in place for communicating injuries and deaths to family members. Most of the news the hostage families received on the 13th came via the grapevine and rumor mill. Not surprisingly, much of it was inaccurate. 
as hostage wife Paula Kratz remembered it. Early on the morning of the 13th, I was at home and heard on the radio that they were going in. I hurried to the prison. When the tear gas was dropped, Paula crawled into Mike Smith's father's car with a towel over my face, and still the gas was terrible. While she was sitting there, however, she heard someone say that her husband had been taken to St. Jerome's Hospital, so she drove off in a frenzy. Once there, though, she could learn nothing. Not locating her husband there left her feeling so faint that I knelt down on the floor and held my head down. Hours later, she did find her husband, Paul, at Genesee Hospital. But by then, she was so distraught she could barely believe that the man lying there was really her husband. Hostage Mike Smith's wife, Sharon, passed an equally nightmarish morning. She had been at the prison when the shooting had commenced and, like June Fargo, had been so overcome by terror and by the effects of the CS gas that a member of the news media brought her into their Winnebago camper, trying to calm her by telling her, Don't worry, Mrs. Smith, they aren't shooting real bullets. They are using rubber bullets. When the hostages who had survived were finally brought out, she had no idea if Mike was among them or, if he was, where they had taken him. Frantically calling hospital after hospital, she finally got word at 4 o'clock p.m. that he had been taken to St. Jerome's. When she met with a doctor in the intensive care ward there, she was told, Your husband is in critical condition. We will be lucky if he lives through the night. Anne D'Arcangelo, the young wife of guard John D'Arcangelo, was equally in the dark about what had happened to her husband. I was at my apartment, she remembered, when, at about 10.30 that morning, she finally received a call from someone at Attica telling her the wonderful news that her husband was out on his way to a hospital and to stay off the phone. Elated, she thought, oh my God, they saved him. And they waited patiently for someone to call with more information. She received no further news for several hours, and finally, around two in the afternoon, I started frantically calling every hospital in the phone book from Buffalo to Rochester. The hospitals had never heard of him. Then around four or five in the afternoon, I received a call from Superintendent Mancusi. He told me that John was a casualty. The prisoners had killed her husband, the warden told her, and now she was supposed to go to some church basement to identify John's body. When she arrived, she felt so lightheaded and ill that she could barely walk. The place, she described, smelled of blood and dirt. Anne Valone also spent all of Monday morning desperate to know what had happened to her husband, Carl. Finally, to her tremendous relief, she received a call from a nun who told her, Your husband is in Genesee Memorial ER. Thrilled, she shared the news with their children, and daughter Mary Ann began planning a party at the house, calling all of the family's friends to share the good news. Meanwhile, Anne rushed to the hospital. Once there, however, all was ominously quiet, and no one would tell her anything about where Carl was or how he was doing. Then Dr. Jenks came out, she recalled. He said I couldn't see him because he was dead. That was really traumatic for me. I just went to the chapel to pray. She couldn't in that moment bear to think about going home. Her kids were all at home celebrating, and she just couldn't imagine being the one to have to tell them, no, he's dead. Deep down, she also wondered whether she could even believe the doctor. After all, someone had told her he was alive, 
And now this doctor was saying he was dead. Did he know what her husband looked like? Finally, though, she got someone who knew him to ID him. And she realized that she now had to go home to break four children's hearts. Break their hearts she did. Marianne just kept yelling, No, no, no! And furious with her mother, insisted that she didn't know what she was talking about, because on the phone they had told her that my dad is alive. But when she saw the priest at the door, she understood with a monumental sense of betrayal and despair that her father had indeed been killed. For the families of the prisoners, there was even less information available regarding their loved one's fate. Hearing nothing at all from prison officials, approximately 40 relatives of Attica prisoners from Rochester, mostly women, converged on the Monroe County Medical Examiner's Office and gathered in the drizzling rain in a vain effort to get from the autopsy reports the names of the dead and the hospitals to which the injured had been taken. Doris Session, the mother of three children, trying desperately to learn news of her husband Josh, begged, If they're in the hospital, why can't we know what hospital so that we can see them? They're people. Ethel Whitaker was frantic to know what might have happened to her brother. She first tried to call the prison and the police department, but, she explained, they hang up on us. They won't even call us. Prisoner relative Ella Greer had a similar account. The police department cursed my mother-in-law out when she had tried to get some news the previous night. Families from Buffalo also grouped together to learn some news, and, finding out nothing, they began dubbing the city of Attica up south. Feeling pressured, Commissioner Oswald announced that information on the prisoners at Attica would be made available via various state phone numbers. The public was promised three phone numbers and were assured that the numbers would be manned 24 hours a day. Predictably, all of the lines were so jammed that it was almost impossible to get through. Meanwhile, back in the prison, their loved ones were in a desperate situation, bleeding, terrified, and even being tortured. 23. And the beat goes on. While President Nixon and the Oval Office reveled in the bold stand Governor Rockefeller had taken against the blacks trying to foment revolution, those who could actually see the devastation and how traumatized the prisoners were from it were sickened. Sergeant Frank Hall, a sheriff from Monroe County, was one of those who saw the retaking's aftermath firsthand. Early on the morning of September 13, Sergeant Hall had personally assisted in loading the canisters of tear gas into the helicopter that had dropped them into the yard and had stuck around in case he could be of assistance as a litter bearer. By mid-morning, however, he felt numb at the sight of more than a hundred injured men lying on the ground. Disturbingly, Hall could still hear rifle shots coming from within D-Block, and then he saw already injured prisoners being beaten so unmercifully it just brought tears to my eyes. I mean, the prison riot was over, and they're taking out all of their aggression on these people that were naked. It just really bothered me, probably more than seeing some of the dead people, because these people were alive and being subjected to this kind of abuse. National Guardsman Franklin Davenport, who had also come to offer assistance as a litter bearer, was equally shocked by the carnage in D-Yard. Looking at the empty casings now strewn about the ground of the prison, he felt strongly that the retaking had been, from the beginning, all about killing. 
deer slug bullets were not, he knew, a controlling or a disabling thing. Another member of law enforcement on the scene was so stunned by the magnitude of the suffering and death in D Yard that he compared the scene he was witnessing, the dead bodies on the ground being labeled with toe tags and the screams of wounded men, to wartime conditions in the Guadalcanal. Even a seasoned captain from the National Guard on the scene struggled to process the bloodbath. He had worked before in a hospital where mass casualty was defined as three or four patients injured at once. This was, in his opinion, a full-fledged disaster. According to a doctor who had been conducting medical research at Attica since 1960, even Superintendent Mancusi was quivering at the sight of so much trauma in D-Yard. As the doctor saw it, Mancusi had simply not understood that, when they were sent in to retake his prison, troopers and COs alike were going to really open up and start killing people. And not grasping this meant that neither Mancusi nor any other state officials, for that matter, had made any prior arrangements with paramedics, ambulance companies, or physicians from local hospitals to be on hand in the wake of that bloody assault. When the shooting officially ended, there was but the usual skeleton crew of medical personnel at Attica. The reviled Dr. Sternberg and Williams, as well as two nurses, an x-ray technician, three orderlies from Batavia Hospital, and two veterinarians. Because there was so little medical care on hand, according to National Guard and other medical workers and witnesses, the wounded were twitching and in convulsions, and eventually going motionless. Mancusi did not make any calls for additional medical assistance until after 11 o'clock a.m., more than an hour after the assault was officially over. And, when he finally let some more doctors in, he was instructed by General John C. Baker, the governor's chief of staff, to make sure that the prisoners weren't going to get priority when it came to dispensing medical care. This state official deemed trooper injuries, a fractured finger, bruised knee, a fractured toe, and gas in eyes and inhalation, a higher priority than the 128 prisoners who had been shot many multiple times. Indeed, not taking prisoner injuries seriously meant that when Superintendent Mancusi finally contacted Meyer Memorial Hospital to ask for more doctors, he failed to convey the scope of the tragedy at his prison and thus the size of the medical team that would be needed. Meyer Memorial's Dr. Worthington Shank cobbled together a tiny team consisting of himself and two medical residents to head to Attica a full hour later. As soon as Shank saw the extent of the disaster awaiting him, he went to the prison administration building and spent another half an hour making calls to assemble a much larger team consisting of four mobile medical units as well as surgical supplies, blood, plasma, and other needed items. It took another three hours before this still insufficient medical team was in place. By the time the additional medical help arrived, numerous severely wounded men had lain for hours without treatment. The state of the suffering was hard even for these medical professionals to witness. One physician looked in dismay at the bodies lined up by Attica's fence and couldn't help but liken it to a Civil War painting. Another, a doctor who had seen combat care in World War II, stared in disbelief because he had never seen people who were so badly neglected. Members of the National Guard were equally appalled when they came in, reporting that people had to be put everywhere, on the floors and in the corridors, 
and in every spare area, and that trying to treat the most severely wounded first simply was not possible in all of the confusion. Dr. Robert S. Jenks at the hospital in Genesee County wasn't just appalled at the scene he came upon, finding it unconscionable, but he was also furious that no one from the prison had called doctors in until long after the injuries had occurred. Another doctor from a nearby hospital was equally appalled at this delay and later reported that he had been waiting in his fully equipped, almost empty hospital for all the wounded he had heard were there and wondering, where are the prisoners? And finally, on his own initiative, he gathered up four other surgeons and set off for Attica. When they arrived, there was nothing to work with. As Jenks described it, not only were their inmates lying out there for hours without any kind of care, but in the area where he was trying to work, there wasn't a pint of blood anywhere. This, he felt, was completely inexcusable. They just didn't ask for it, because I know plenty was available. There are several blood banks around here, and they could have gotten all they needed beforehand. Another doctor also reported that it was chaos when he arrived. Nobody was directing anybody what to do, he went on, and the prison had none of the medical supplies he needed, including vital things such as plasma. Because of this lack of planning and neglect, prisoners with compound fractures received either no care or nothing beyond primitive bandaging, and even the most severely wounded prisoners had no sedation and were expected to suffer through the pain. Worse, even after the reinforcements arrived, every doctor on the scene could see that it was going to be impossible to treat all of the men in serious need of care given the state of the tiny prison hospital. Treatment was also hindered by the tear gas still hanging in the air, making medical personnel ill. Dr. David Breen, a third-year medical resident, recalled that at first he could only stay inside the facility for about 60 seconds because the tear gas bothered my eyes. Clearly, the only way to deal with a large number of seriously injured inmates at Attica was to get them transferred out of Attica to local hospitals. But prison officials made that process almost impossible. As later testimony made clear, even when finally permitted entry, medical and legal personnel were severely hampered in discharging their professional responsibilities by the obstructionist correction officials, the refusal by correction officials, Warden Mancusi in particular, to permit certain injured inmates to be removed to a nearby Buffalo hospital for surgery and emergency medical care that doctors maintained they so urgently needed. By late in the afternoon on the day of the retaking, only two prisoners had been moved to a hospital. By day's end, only six. Among those men was Edward Kowalsik, who'd been shot multiple times. He was transported to Meyer Memorial only because a National Guardsman kept insisting that he needed immediate emergency surgery. And still, as he lay in unimaginable pain in an ambulance, the wounded man noticed that the prison guard who was driving took his time, no lights, no siren, and stopped at stop signs. A National Guardsman who was in the ambulance with them got into it with him, saying to the guard that the guys were no longer moving in back, but the guard refused to hit the accelerator any harder. For the lucky few who made it to a hospital for treatment, their care was compromised because even some of the most grievously wounded of the men were shackled by one foot to the bed frame by the correction officer in charge. He maintained that, while he had received no orders to shackle the prisoners, 
he deemed it necessary because some of them were large and strong and presented an assault and escape risk. One of these alleged flight risks was Jomo, who'd been shot seven times and was barely alive. Back at Attica, National Guard physician Dr. John W. Cutmore was overwhelmed as he tried to deal with the tremendous numbers of men in critical condition in the prison's tiny and archaic hospital. Because Mancusi was making the transfer of wounded prisoners to outside hospitals so difficult, Dr. Cutmore was forced to do serious trauma surgery under conditions that, at best, resembled a battlefield medic station. On September 13 alone, his small crew of doctors on hand at Attica were forced to perform 25 operations, including three abdominal laparotomies, and at times were operating on multiple men simultaneously. What Cudmore was most upset by, however, was the way in which troopers and correction officers interfered with his attempts to help the injured men who lay in heaps across D and A yards. The surgeon saw one man staggering around, blinded by the river of blood running down his face, and as he approached him to try to treat his gushing wound, he heard a voice from behind me telling me to stop, that he was a ringleader and I was not to treat him. Troopers and guards were so often getting in the way of medical caregiving that outside doctors found themselves more than once in open conflict with members of law enforcement in the midst of the chaos. In one case, a guardsman was told quite literally to rub salt in the prisoner's wounds. And in another case, a guardsman who was trying to reassure prisoners that they were going to be all right was contradicted by an officer shouting out how bad the wounds looked and how it looked as though the prisoners were going to die. When one guardsman started to make a list of the wounded so that he could get in touch with their families, a CO came over and told him he couldn't do that and then ripped a couple of names off the list because, the CO said, those two weren't wounded. Other members of law enforcement still in the prison after the retaking went beyond preventing prisoners from receiving care and were actively meeting out additional pain to scores of already wounded men. Dr. Cutmore watched in horror while one young man with severe shotgun wounds was tortured by troopers poking or kicking him when he was on the ground. One young doctor who was on the scene with Dr. Cutmore, David Breen, saw one Spanish-speaking prisoner trying to sit up so that he could ask someone to please contact his family and let them know that he was alive. After he tried repeatedly to get someone's attention, the prisoner was struck on the head with a blunt object by a security guard, a very severe blow to the head. Another hurt man asked for some kind of hospital assistance, such as medication. He said, I'm shot. You know, help me, please. He was pleading for his life. And the trooper turned around and put his foot on his neck. Some of the torture was so hideous that it literally nauseated those who happened upon it. One doctor described a prisoner whom he saw on Monday between 2 and 2.30 p.m. who was cut up badly and raggedly around the rectum and genitals, and it was not a gunshot wound, but looked like it had been done with glass or a broken bottle. One equally barbaric incident witnessed by a National Guardsman occurred mid-afternoon on Monday the 13th. James O'Day, a young guardsman, was on duty when he noticed a group of eight fellow guardsmen carrying an injured man on a stretcher. The man looked badly hurt, so O'Day asked what had happened to him and was told that he had gunshot wounds in his legs and buttocks. Suddenly, as O'Day looked on, a white CO standing nearby 
said that he didn't believe this man had really been hurt, and reached over to tip the stretcher, dumping the prisoner onto the ground, which was slimy and dirty. He told the prisoner to go to his cell, or he would stab him with a screwdriver. And before the prisoner had a chance to do anything, he stabbed him five or six times in the anal area. The prisoner never stood up, but just pushed back with his feet. And all this time he was on his back, the man was walking between the prisoner's legs, threatening him. O'Day desperately wanted to stop what he saw happening, but he was terrified of the COs who were standing around nearby. He had the feeling that if he had done anything, his life would have been in danger. O'Day was so disturbed by the incident that he tried to report it to the New York State Police several days after it occurred and, when no one believed him, eventually went to the FBI office in Buffalo. There, agents took down his report and noted in writing that he appeared to be a very level-headed individual and is not a long-haired hippie, which suggested that they saw his account as credible. And then there was the abuse inmates were suffering at the hands of Attica's own physicians, Selden Williams and Paul Sternberg. According to reports from other medical personnel, one injured man had a large lump in his throat. And when Dr. Sternberg saw the protrusion, he laughed and said, Ha ha, you swallowed your teeth. And this was, in fact, what had happened. Eyewitnesses on the scene reported hearing one of the prison doctors, either Sternberg or Williams, say about an injured inmate, that nigger is a fucker and he should have died in the yard so we won't treat him. Another prisoner was in the prison hospital with two gunshot wounds in his back when two men in white coats, presumably doctors, approached him and one of them stuck his finger into one of the holes and started wriggling it around. The prisoner was screaming with pain. A National Guardsman reported seeing one prisoner who had a deep hole in his head that looked like a gunshot wound. As he was being taken to the hospital, his head was hanging down, so the guardsman picked it up and found it was in two pieces. Later, the same guardsman checked on this person and found one of the prison doctors playing with the head, joggling it up and down. Another prisoner begged Dr. Williams for medication for his injuries, and allegedly Williams retorted, I'm never going to give you no medication. I hope you all die that troopers, COs, and Attica staff physicians were largely unbothered by the barbaric treatment given these seriously wounded prisoners had everything to do with the vicious rumors about prisoner atrocities that they had been inundated with for days outside of Attica and now actively spread within its walls. National Guardsman Dan Callahan, for example, saw terrible abuses of prisoners take place when he was sent into Attica right after the retaking but he had also been told stories that made him cold to their plight. For example, that William Quinn had been sodomized before he was deliberately killed. Trooper Gerard Smith had heard the same sorts of tales of prisoner barbarism, which he could see got the emotions really rolling. The COs were real excited, and they were doing some damage to the people. This was also how the prisoner abuses that state legislators witnessed when they toured the facilities were justified. Arthur Eve, Herman Badillo, John Dunn, James Emery, Frank Walkley, Clark Wemple, and others had watched from catwalks as men lying on the ground in the yard were beaten with sticks and could see that certain inmates were being singled out for particularly harsh treatment from the troopers. They had even seen the particular horror of Big Blacksmith, totally naked, being tortured on a table below them. 
None of them rushed to intervene. Like National Guardsman Dan Callahan, who witnessed the torture, they later felt enormous regret that they did not try to help. At the time, however, each of them had bought the whole argument. Even at the time, however, National Guardsman Callahan could see that the abuses happening to prisoners following the retaking were fueled by outright racism. Callahan overheard one trooper bragging of shooting a black inmate with a three fifty seven and watched him then give a white power salute. He also saw a prison guard sergeant telling this very tall, yellow-skinned black to strip, and when the man refused, the sergeant told others to hold him down and then kicked him in the head like a football. He went limp. Another guardsman overheard one trooper saying to another over by a food stand outside Attica's walls that it was hot work killing niggers. Racial hostility was in fact so intense that during the legislators' tour that morning, even Assemblyman Arthur Eve was showered with invective. Guards were yelling at Eve, get your nigger ass out of here. Any white inmate who had stood with the black rebels in D-Yard also suffered special abuse. Doctors from the National Guard reported hearing troopers and COs punctuate their beating of white inmates, the nigger lovers, with bitter refrains of, this is what you get for hanging around with niggers. So deep was the guards and troopers' hatred of Attica's surrendered prisoners, and particularly the black men among them, that for days after the retaking they engaged not only in physical abuse, but also in the wanton destruction of these men's most basic and necessary possessions. A trooper forced Jack Florence to pull out his dentures and hand them over, then threw them on the ground and stepped on it. In addition to smashing the men's false teeth that they needed to eat, troopers and COs mangled eyeglasses and ground them into the dirt and tore apart every necklace and smashed every wristwatch they happened to find on a prisoner. What wasn't savagely destroyed was stolen. On the 14th of September, men from the National Guard went into the prison armed with metal detectors, and Dan Callahan noticed that one of his sergeants had stolen a bunch of watches. All up and down his arm, he was proud. Another guardsman cheerily displayed his own trophy, a set of false teeth with a bullet hole in it. From the moment that the shooting died down, officers had begun herding inmates violently up the half-dozen steps into D-Block, across D-Tunnel, and then back down into A-Yard. As the men were being rushed, pushed, and kicked from D-Yard into A-Yard, they had begun falling over one another, bodies on top of bodies. For the men on the bottom of this heap, it was almost impossible to breathe. Barely able to get air, these men were then, as Herbert X. Blyden remembered the ordeal, stripped naked and forced to lay in the mud face down and crawl. During this entire process, they encountered more and more officers who beat them and tore their clothes off, took away glasses, watches, false teeth, etc., then herded them naked in a long snaking line that wound slowly through a yard into a tunnel where a gauntlet of armed officers awaited them. Once inside the tunnel, with their feet bleeding profusely from the glass fragments that covered the prison's ground, the men were forced to run for some fifty yards, and both sides were lined with officers with axe handles, two-by-fours, baseball bats, and rifle butts. When these naked and often severely wounded men stumbled or fell, they had to crawl the length of the tunnel while being struck and jabbed repeatedly. One prisoner described the gauntlet this way. 
Well, they stripped me and they told me to go and get in line. They had a line in the form of a snake, and you had to get in line, and they were moving us in one at a time. So this way, the officers got the chance to get their sticks ready. On both sides of the hall, they had officers, you know, with sticks, correction officers. John Cutmore and some of the other doctors saw with their own eyes what happened inside a tunnel. There were people on either side of the door, and as men came to the door, they'd aim at their legs or vicinity with clubs and and hit them to knock them down. Any prisoner who troopers or COs considered to be a leader was chalked across the back with a large white X and singled out for abuse. When these 80 men managed to make it through that first gauntlet, they were forced to run another when they were taken from A block over to HBZ. At the entrance to HBZ, where the men would all be placed in solitary, six to eight COs called to each one, You want your amnesty? Well, come and get it. After they made it through that lineup, guards continued to beat them severely with clubs. Big Black Smith was, of course, chalked as a leader, and after enduring many hours of torture on the table in A-Yard, he too was forced to run these gauntlets before being thrown, eventually, into an HBZ cell. Guardsman Dan Callahan was just inside A-Tunnel when Big Black got to that first entrance. The last inmate in the yard was Frank Smith. There was a sense of anticipation. This guy is going to get special treatment. The guards approached Smith and told him to get to his feet. He had been in that position on the table for four to five hours, so he fell and they hit him repeatedly between the legs and in the anal area as he was pleading for mercy. Eventually, he managed to crawl through a tunnel and all Callahan could hear then was the thrumming of nightsticks against his body. As five officers took turns hitting him, one of them managed to break his wrist, while another, as Big Black recalled, opened my head up and knocked me just about out. Big Black felt each blow. After this, he explained, they took me to a room next to the hospital, laid me on the floor, spread-eagled me, and played shotgun roulette with me. Then they took me and dumped me on the floor in the prison hospital. As night descended upon Attica, a skeleton force of Troop A personnel assisting correction officers at the facility had managed to rehouse 1,240 of the prisoners who had been in D-Yard into 540 cells, most in A-Block. The rehousing had been a brutal affair from start to finish. According to guardsman Dan Callahan, when some of his men went into a cell block to help guards get an unruly inmate in the cell, he heard a commotion and then watched in disbelief as an officer dragged the man out of his cell and threw him down, whereupon his head opened like a melon all over the concrete. He also watched as naked, wounded, and terrified men were locked at times three to a cell in A block. In the best-case scenario, there were two men sleeping head to foot on a narrow bed and the third one on the floor with a blanket and no mattress but usually all the men lay naked on the cold concrete floor of the cell with no covering or bed. Some men viewed being locked up even in these conditions with relief. After all, perhaps this meant that the cruelty of the day was over. Perry Ford was one of these. As the sound of gunfire continued to punctuate the night air, Ford now cowered in a cell with two white prisoners, hoping that they would now be left alone. 
but the correction officers who had tossed him into the cell were still seething with anger, having decided that Perry had been involved in the death of Officer Billy Quinn. Within 15 minutes of locking him up, the officers came back and dragged him out of the cell, shouting, We going to kill you because you killed Quinn, all the while calling Ford a black slimy nigger. As he was dragged down the stairs back into the yard, he almost slipped and fell on a large puddle of blood with broken teeth in it. One of the officers told him this was from the last nigger they had dealt with. Now trembling from sheer terror, Ford was thrust out into the yard and placed against a wall, where he faced a trooper with a shotgun in hand. The trooper took all but one of the bullets out of his gun, cocked the gun at Ford, and said, There's a bullet in here, and you'll find out when you're hit and then began pulling the trigger again and again. Each time, Ford anticipated death. Russian roulette was a frequent practice of the night guards and troopers. So was telling thirsty, exhausted men cowering on the floor, like Carlos Roche, to drink the urine of correction officers. Officers spent the entire night of the 13th scraping the bars loudly with the butts of their guns, taunting, physically assaulting, and threatening to kill the men they had just rehoused. And during the following several nights as well, groups of COs visited the cell area and threatened inmates with death, pointing guns and clubs into the cells. Some of the former hostages were taken aback by how relentless the attacks on prisoners were. Once hostage Donnie Almeter heard about what had been happening at the prison, he said, shaking his head, I understood the initial beatings, but I never understood going back in a cell three days later and dragging a guy out of his cell to beat him. Superintendent Mancusi had ordered all the doctors from outside to leave the prison by 11 o'clock p.m., and the remaining prison doctor announced he was going to bed, so the men in cells were not only terrorized by officers, many of them were still also in serious medical trauma. Perry Ford described two of the men he saw that night. One was shot 12 times, or close to 12 times, and he was in the cell. He had a bullet in his neck. There was another inmate with a bullet on his spine. And they were asking for medication, you know. Could they get out to the doctor? To no avail. Prisoner Jack Florence, whose dentures had been smashed, experienced this callous lack of treatment firsthand. I keep begging for a nurse. Don't get one, he remembered, shuddering. Tuesday night? Everybody come by, ask them for a nurse or a doctor, don't get one. Wednesday came, I asked for a nurse, don't get one. Finally, Florence saw that a member of the brass was coming by his cell, so he then begged him to get a doctor up there. This official, too, didn't say a word, kept on walking. Even the post-operative patients got no follow-up care, a fact reportedly shrugged off by a physician leaving the prison on the 13th who said, "Well." They're young and strong. I guess they'll be all right. But there were many medical professionals who were deeply worried about these men, and who would have stayed to treat them or would gladly have entered the prison to treat them if only they were allowed. Waiting outside the prison doors that night was a medical team consisting of nine doctors and three nurses from New York City, mostly from Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx, who had arrived at the prison saying they were answering the call for doctors, but none were let in. This team represented the National Medical Association, a group of about 8,000 doctors and nurses of color. They had gotten there earlier that day and, 
desperate to be allowed to render their services, had tried to enlist the aid of all medical personnel they saw at the entrance to the prison. They came running up to us, one doctor recalled, and asked that he tell Mancusi they were there and ready to help. The physician promised to pass on the message, but wasn't optimistic that the superintendent would want them there. And Mancusi didn't. The reason they were barred, according to Dr. Michael Brandris, was that Lincoln Hospital was a well-known hotbed of activism, social activism, and everything else. One of the group from Lincoln Hospital, Dr. Howard Levy, had gained fame in 1967 as the military doctor who was court-martialed for refusing to instruct Green Beret troops. But the clear need to have more doctors on hand to help should have made this a minor concern. Even when another group of doctors, residents, and nurses from Buffalo, with no political associations, showed up at Attica, hoping to be allowed to assist the medical personnel already there from Meyer Memorial Hospital and University of Buffalo Medical School, they too were denied entry. The truth was that prison officials didn't really trust any doctors to see what was happening inside of Attica, particularly after two staff physicians from Meyer Memorial were now telling the press of guards' brutality. For Mancusi, this was only the beginning of a years-long effort to prevent word from getting out about the abuses occurring behind Attica's walls throughout the day and into the night of September 13 and for weeks thereafter. But he was surely aware that these terrible violations of human rights were taking place, as were his deputies, Leon Vincent and Carl File, his boss, Russell Oswald, and various high-ranking state police officials, such as George Infante, John Monahan, and Henry Williams. All were at the prison from the morning of the 13th onward, and all could not have helped but see the rampant abuse of prisoners reported by doctors, legislators, and even National Guardsmen. And yet, to a one, they all claimed that procedures were being adhered to. Indeed, the Department of Corrections described its officers as dog-tired and deeply concerned, dedicated correction officers and staff who were working tirelessly to issue clothing, bedding, and the essentials of living to the population and house them three to a cell under as comfortable living conditions as possible. The troopers themselves were less politic about how they felt about the men they were now supposed to rehouse. Directly below a chalked inscription made by the D-Yard rebels commemorating the beginning of the uprising on the 9th of September, members of law enforcement made their own inscription. Retaken 9-13-71. 31 dead niggers. Outside the prison, many people were working around the clock to ensure that law enforcement wouldn't be allowed to continue to hurt the men who had just been assaulted in the retaking of Attica. Besides their families and the medical personnel who volunteered, scores of prisoner rights lawyers set out for the prison to insist on proper medical care and immediate legal counsel. As Herman Schwartz put it, lawyers started to pour into upstate New York that night. They didn't know much about what was going on yet, but they knew enough to know that Attica's prisoners were now at the mercy of troopers and correction officers who had been hoping to get at them for four long days. They also knew, from the death toll of the hostages and the stories told about how they died, that things were very likely to be ugly inside for anyone with a number. William Hellerstein, a full-bearded 35-year-old attorney in charge of the Criminal Appeals Board, of the Legal Aid Society in New York City, 
set out for Buffalo the morning of the 13th with a group of other young attorneys, two of whom he had just hired. As he recalled it, we didn't know exactly what we could do, but eventually they ended up at Herman Schwartz's house for a planning meeting and then headed to the University of Buffalo to discuss how they would get into Attica to check on the prisoners. Making that plan was fairly fraught. As Hellerstein remembered, it was a big get-together, lots of yelling and screaming, between the lawyers such as himself and Schwartz and the younger, more radical attorneys and law students. At issue was how best to levy pressure on the state in order to protect the men inside. All suspected that abuses were taking place, but they didn't have concrete evidence. So what could they really do? Eventually, it was decided that their best shot at helping the prisoners would be to get a federal order allowing them to enter the prison on the grounds of ensuring that the prisoners' Miranda rights were being observed. Schwartz, who had long known U.S. District Judge John Curtin and had just met with him days earlier to get the ill-fated injunction he had brought into D-Yard, called the judge at his home that night. Curtin invited Schwartz, Hellerstein, and Stan Bass from the NAACP over to his house so that he could hear their arguments in person. Listening gravely, he finally decided that he would grant a temporary order granting them the right to enjoin interrogation, granting us the right to see our clients, and allowing medical care. Curtin personally phoned Mancusi to inform him of the order and to tell him that, if he had any questions, there would be a hearing to review the order in his chambers at 10.30 the following morning, September 14. Relieved, a large group of the lawyers set out for Attica in the pouring rain. Hellerstein and his team, who were traveling in a rented station wagon and several other cars, found themselves caravanning with a band of doctors from Lincoln Hospital, who were just then making their way to the prison by van from New York City. Right before reaching the prison, these vehicles filled with lawyers and doctors stopped to gas up, when suddenly they were surrounded by troopers with shotguns drawn who demanded to search the doctor's van. Hellerstein knew that it was a crime to interfere with the process of serving a federal court order, so, brandishing the curtain order, he not only forced the troopers to cease harassing the van full of hippie doctors, but actually convinced the troopers to escort the caravan of lawyers and doctors to the prison. At approximately midnight, the group arrived at Attica, showed the court order, and expected at that point to be let in to check on the prisoners. Warden Mancusi and Assistant Deputy Superintendent File, however, refused them entry. The minute that he learned of the court order, File had conferred with his superiors in the Department of Corrections, and he felt confident that the Attica staff would be supported if they refused to follow Curtin's order. Schwartz and Hellerstein were incredulous. Even though they had with them some 20 lawyers and 20 doctors, we were told that they would not obey the order, and at 3.30 in the morning, that was confirmed. Hellerstein set out to find a phone so that he could call Curtin to tell him that his order was being disregarded. Curtin was, he could tell, very shaken up that prison officials were so blatantly refusing to follow a federal court order. But Curtin didn't see that there was anything he could do until the next morning at the hearing he had scheduled. Tired and dispirited, the lawyers marshaled their energies to try to prepare their arguments for later that morning. Part 5 Reckonings and Reactions 
Robert Douglas. Robert Douglas had spent a long week trying to help Governor Rockefeller resolve the situation at Attica, and somehow, even though the uprising was over, the crisis was not. Douglas had worked for the governor as an attorney since 1965. He had an impressive pedigree. Born in Binghamton, New York, he had graduated with distinction from Dartmouth and earned an LLB from Cornell Law School. He then took a position with a prestigious law firm before coming on board with the Rockefeller administration. Douglas loved New York and knew its laws inside and out. It was an honor to serve as the governor's eyes and ears at Attica. He felt that Rockefeller's team on the ground had done a good job of trying to broker a peaceful settlement and, when that had proved impossible, retaking the prison with as little loss of life as possible. Douglas had never been persuaded that the prisoner conditions at Attica were that grave. In his view, their grievances largely came down to the number of showers and the amount of fresh fruit you got, and whether or not they had alternatives to pork in the diet. What is more, he didn't think they were a sympathetic group. As far as Douglas was concerned, these were the most hardened, toughest of New York's criminal inmate population. These guys were there for long sentences, mostly murder, arsons, rapes. These were the worst of the worst. By Sunday, it was clear in Douglas's mind that Attica's prisoners really just wanted a confrontation. The prison yard was starting to become barricaded with mattresses. They were fashioning weapons. They soaked mattresses in gasoline, and it looked like they were getting ready for some kind of a battle. Now the battle was over. As Douglas saw it, the gunfire had ended very quickly, and we got the hostages out. The state's job had been to restore order, and so they went in, they did it, and they restored order. Still, he knew that what mattered was how the next few days would unfold. If the media began feeding on this thing, Douglas thought, then what should be regarded as a reasonably successful effort to put down a terrible prison riot might turn into a bit of a nightmare for the governor. 24. Speaking Up On the morning of September 13, as hostages began coming out of the prison, the retaking had initially seemed like a success to the men whom Rockefeller had sent to Attica on his behalf. But within 24 hours, it was beginning to seem like a major disaster, one that would require significant public relations maneuvering. When Wyoming County District Attorney Lewis James, the man who had the most immediate legal jurisdiction over Attica, arrived at the prison late that morning, even he was shaken by what he saw and immediately made it clear to the men on the governor's staff that this was a far bigger mess than his office was equipped to address. There were simply too many dead bodies, too many people inside who were in awful shape and might still die and, frankly, too many questions looming about why things had happened as they had. As he said to them, Gentlemen, the size of this thing, look out the window. You can just visualize the hundreds of possible cases that need to be investigated. I don't have the staff to cope with it. Alarmed, Rockefeller counsel Howard Shapiro hastened to confer with his other trusted legal advisors, Robert Douglas and Michael Whiteman, and it was decided they would ask the deputy attorney general, Robert E. Fisher, to give an early assessment of the legal situation at Attica. He was to overlook the thing from a law enforcement point of view, that is, a prosecution of any of the criminal events. 
In turn, Fisher sent his assistant attorney general, Anthony Simonetti, to the prison to suss things out. Simonetti arrived on the scene fairly early on the 13th as the chaos there continued to unfold. It wouldn't be until several days later, on September 17, that Rockefeller made the official announcement that Fisher had assumed direction of the investigation into the rebellion and retaking at Attica. But the governor had made sure to have his keen legal eyes on the ground well before that. In fact, the call to Fisher and Simonetti's almost immediate presence on the scene were clear indicators that the governor had very quickly understood that his troopers' actions on the 13th might land him in hot water. That Rockefeller looked to Fisher's office to handle this potentially messy legal situation was significant. Fisher headed up the state's Organized Crime Task Force, OCTF, a unit that was set up to go after thugs and gangs. Rockefeller chose this unit to investigate the Attica uprising because he had, from the beginning, been convinced that it had been the result of a left-wing revolutionary conspiracy. He hoped that the same laws that Fisher used to prosecute organized crime might be applicable here. As the Rockefeller administration readied itself for a backlash, and as civil rights lawyers from across the state were working any angle they could think of to get into Attica to see what was happening, the county morgues near the prison were receiving the bodies. The number of corpses lying on the floor of the prison's maintenance building was such that pathologists from three different counties were alerted of the many autopsies needed. Some bodies were in nearby hospitals in Batavia. Some went to the office of the Erie County Medical Examiner in Buffalo, and the remainder, 19 prisoners and 8 hostages, went to Rochester to the Monroe County Medical Examiner's office of Dr. John Edland and his assistant, Dr. G. Richard Abbott. When Dr. Edland received the call requesting that his office take the bulk of the Attica victims, he agreed, but had to put his office's disaster plan into effect, thus allowing for him to bring in three additional medical examiner physicians to assist with the work. These doctors quickly made their way to the Emmy's office, only to have to wait until past midnight for the bodies to arrive. Edland and Abbott were speechless as they watched state troopers back two large trucks into the garage bay of their facility, lock the garage door, and proceed to unload stretcher after stretcher onto the cement floor. By 12.20 Tuesday morning, September 14, the morgue's garage was full, crowded not just with dead bodies but with troopers and other state officials who insisted on remaining in the room. The state troopers, as well as various members of the Monroe County Sheriff's Office, were determined to watch as each body was undressed and autopsied, and state police photographers were on hand to snap pictures. Members of law enforcement were clearly fearful of what the autopsy process might reveal, and like Rockefeller's men, they wanted to maintain as much control over the aftermath of the retaking as they could. Dr. Edland had been the one to autopsy William Quinn on September 12, and in that case he had no trouble ruling that the cause of death had been severe head injuries due to alleged assault by prison inmates. These deaths, however, were much more controversial. But Dr. Edland was a consummate professional who did not think politics and medicine should mix. It wasn't that he had no interest in the world around him. Indeed, he was a registered Republican and had vacillated between a career in law or medicine, deciding to become a pathologist precisely so that he could have a foot in both arenas. 
he considered it his job to provide accurate answers about the cause of death to the family members of the deceased, whatever those causes were. How his findings might affect public opinion about the Attica retaking or the political careers of those in charge would have no influence on how he did his work. He had been the chief medical examiner of Monroe County for three years, and in that time had earned a solid reputation as both a hard worker and a decent man. Dr. Edland and his assistant, Dr. Abbott, got to work immediately. First, they had to hose down each body because of their heavy contamination with pepper gas, and then, before starting on any autopsy, the doctors made sure that the medical photographer, Ed Riley, took x-rays of the body. Meanwhile, the fact that state troopers kept milling around and trying to oversee everything was unnerving to the morgue personnel. From the moment Riley turned on the x-ray machine, and they could clearly see the many bullets and buckshot pellets lodged deep in the prisoners' bodies, both Abbott and Edland understood why the troopers were so concerned. By 4.30 a.m., it was patently obvious that the hostages had all been shot and that there were no slashed throats or genital mutilations. This, of course, was not at all what state officials had told the media, and the doctors were aware of this. With more than 40 troopers crowding the hallways, hovering over them and mumbling under their breath, the two pathologists continued to search dutifully for any signs of slashed throats as cause of death. But all that they could find were two knife cuts near hostage throats, and the wounds were on the back of the neck and less than a tenth of an inch deep. As both doctors knew, if someone is going to try to seriously harm or kill somebody with a knife wound to the throat, he's going to do it from the front. Perhaps even more alarming to the troopers than the fact that none of the men had died from knife wounds was that everyone was well aware that the only people at Attica who had guns on the 13th of September were members of law enforcement. Even with hostile stares boring into their backs, Edland and Abbott pushed on, trying to learn as much as possible about how each man at Attica had died. It was clear, for example, that hostage John Monteleone had died from a gunshot wound to the chest that had entered his body, then traveled downward until it perforated his aorta and the left lung. Deeply embedded in Monteleone's chest, Dr. Abbott found a mushroomed lead, partially jacketed bullet bearing numerous rifling grooves, which he identified as coming from a forty-four caliber. It was equally obvious that prisoner L.D. Barkley had been shot in the back where there was a one-by-one-half-inch gunshot entrance wound with well-defined contact ring, and that this bullet had caused extensive destruction of the lower lobe of the right lung. The bullet, a badly fragmented jacketed bullet of slightly greater than 25 caliber, was lodged in his right fourth rib. Barkley had been shot at close range. Sam Melville, whom police had particularly hated, died when bullet fragments tore up his lung causing him to bleed to death. Whether this supported later prisoner reports that Melville had been alive after the retaking with his arms up in surrender could not be settled by his autopsy. As the long hours dragged on, and still finding nothing but gunshot wounds, Edland and Abbott decided to go home to get a bit of sleep before finishing the 15 autopsies they still had to do. The doctors and their staff had been up for over 24 hours, and by 6.30 a.m. they felt that a break was necessary in order for us to complete our work in the careful, objective manner that was required.
After what amounted to little more than a catnap, however, within 90 minutes the pair were back at it, and both were growing ever more unsettled. From the moment the bodies had arrived in his facility, Edlund in particular had felt intimidated by the presence of the troopers, and, once it became clear what the autopsies revealed, he felt that he was being subjected to pressure to change his findings. He had also been told to pay special attention to the bodies of two prisoners, Barry Schwartz and Michael Privetera, whom troopers had found in D-Block after the retaking, and who had died, these same troopers insisted, under suspicious circumstances. Edlund immediately knew why he had been instructed to focus on these bodies. These men had clearly been killed before the morning of the retaking, presumably by prisoners. The autopsy